brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. Really excited this show. We have Doug in studio with us, who's a former Air Force PJ. We also have Jens on, uh, who you guys know from the loadout room, really as Rex the Norum, I, which I forget sometimes, uh, Jens. I'm not going to call you Rex. Um, because I remember when we had you on, like, really briefly at last year's SHOT Show, I was always under the impression that you wrote as Jens, and then I was, like, looking back on the website, and I'm like, oh, I'm wrong. No, you don't. Is that like your name in the Necromondicon or something like that? <laughs> no, not quite. It's a military nickname, just translated to Latin. <laughs> I, uh, I was running into issues. Uh, if you Google my actual name, you're going to get a lot of very uh, not safe for work results for a certain <laughs> film star who works <laughs> in Germany. Shit, I had no um, idea to that. avoid. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. I really don't. That's so I right. have uh, to avoid any confusion with that guy and uh, and you know keep my name clear, so to speak. Um, I went ahead and used my nickname. I I never heard that story, but it kind of makes a Jen's hammer. <laughs> it, it sounds like it could be. So all right. So anyway, before we get into everything with you and get into everything with Doug, uh, I of course want to talk about Pelican Coolers. They're our sponsor all of this month. Hard-sided coolers that are all made in the USA. Most competitors, including brands like Yeti, they make most of their stuff overseas. They have an actual lifetime warranty, a wide variety of sizes and colors, 10 different sizes and 11 different colors. If you check them out at the website, pelicancoolers.com, you'll see just such an awesome variety. We're not like QVC. We don't have video, but you look behind you, Doug. <laughs> that's, uh, that's like military-grade cooler right there. Yeah, they're great, man. So easy pull. And it comes in SOCOM tan. Yep. Uh, not multicam, though. <laughs> not not okay, that well. I know of. <laughs> yeah, check the website. Uh, easy pull hard latches that aren't rubber bands like the other guys. Pelican is a trusted brand since 1976. Their 70-quart cooler, that's the one that Scott Whitner was so lucky to get. Uh, that 70-quart cooler can hold ice up to nine days. They're light. Other coolers weigh 30% more on average. They have a built-in bottle opener under the lid. That comes in handy. Ergonomic handles, which make them easier to carry. And uh, our code is just for the website. I know you can get Pelican coolers all over the place, Amazon, many other places. But you got to go to pelicancoolers.com for our offer and use the coupon code SOFTREP. What you're going to get with that is a 22-ounce tumbler. You add that tumbler to your cart with your order, and then you use the promo code SOFTREP, and you'll get it absolutely free. So just add that 22-ounce tumbler on pelicancoolers.com with any order, and you can find that tumbler in the drinkware section, once again, at the top, and use the promo code SOFTREP. So get on that, pelicancoolers.com, promo code SOFREP. And uh, actually, the site that Jens or Rex is a part of, 
uh, did some great reviews of it. So check out the Loadout Room, loadoutroom.com. Uh, well, you know what? We'll get into Rex's background or Jen's background. I feel like I have to say both names because there's a lot of readers who know you as Rex. Um, but first, you know, just briefly before we get into our feature interview with Doug, if you want to get into who you are, and I also want to butcher your last name, which I'm guessing is Armenian. Cause it IAN. is, yeah, the okay. IAN, yeah. Yeah, my name's uh, Doug Kachijan. I was a pararescueman in the Air Force for 13 years, actually the whole time with the Air National Guard. So I, I can get into that whole story when we get into the feature interview, but uh, it's, it's one of the best-kept secrets of the military, Guard PJ. And then I run a uh, private practice physical therapy clinic, actually a couple of blocks south of here, so it's pretty easy to hop in the studio. And then kind of like a sports performance consulting company as well with my two business partners. So uh, that's the down and dirty, and I guess we can talk more later. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, we will. I was looking at the website. I mean, what you guys are doing is is really awesome. Uh, and Jens, if you want to just briefly mention your background, and then we'll get into what went down at SHOT Show, since none of us were there this year, but you guys were. Sure. Well, as stated, uh, Jens Hammer. I write under Rex Nenorum. Um, writing for Loadout Room for almost three years now. Um, just recently, um, jumped on with Ammo Land as well. We'll be writing my first article with them shortly. I, uh, I served in the U.S. Army, 2nd Ranger Battalion, for four years. Hippie. I got out after five deployments, and uh, it took a while to find my next gig, but uh, eventually got back into civilian life and figured out what the hell was going on and, and got back on track. Very cool, man. Well, pretty much every year I've been at SHOT Show, I think you've been there. So which, uh, what number of SHOT Show is this for you? This is my third one. Oh, really? Uh, I thought, I thought you people. were at more for some yeah. reason. Because, like, Jack, you've been to how many? Uh, enough to have a star over my CIB. Uh, I, I think I did, like, seven, seven SHOT Shows in a row. So this was the first time I, I took off. Um, but, man... That's an experience. Yeah, I, I would agree going as many times as I have, not not quite seven. But, uh, Jens, what was unique about this year? What did you enjoy? What what new innovations are out there? Sure. Well, first, uh, I had a lot of people ask, you know, kind of what's different about this year. And, and being my third year, um, the, the experience itself is different. You know, your first year, you really fight the venue. I mean, just trying to figure out where in the hell everything is, how it's laid out, where all these signs pointing me. Um, and last year, my second, I got into the swing of things, and then you're kind of fighting appointments. You want to make so many appointments so you can see so many things, and, and really you end up running from one appointment to the next, missing all the cool booths in between. Um, this my third year. I had a lot more time that was unscheduled. I could just kind of freeform and get out there and check out some of the, the lesser-known booths. Um, I think, for me, the theme I saw this year was kind of a little bit smaller, a little bit lighter, a little bit more expensive, um, a lot of iterational improvements for, for some companies. Um, loophole jumped back into the red dot game. They had a really nice one back when I was a kid. I think I picked up my first loophole red dot when I was like 16 and lasted almost 10 years, a pretty rough abuse. So they've got the VX freedom red dot. They've, uh, generally generationally improved their LTO tracker to the two and the two HD as well. Um, one of the big drawbacks to their little handheld thermal was that it just wasn't quite enough, not enough range, not enough resolution. Um, everyone who used one agreed, boy, that's pretty cool. Um, but it was just a little bit limited, and now they've really widened their scope. No pun intended. Um, X products, you know, they've had their, their flamethrowers and their can launchers and stuff for a few years. They came out with a, the XM42 Lite, a little shorter, a little lighter, a couple seconds less runtime on their flamethrower. Um, 
if I remember right off the top of my head, their their old XM42 flamethrower had like a 32 foot range. This one has a 28, and uh, burn time is reduced by three or four seconds. This is an day. actual flamethrower <laughs> that uh, that they're selling. Actual flamethrower, yeah. yeah. It runs on 50/50 gas and diesel. Um, the diesel gives it a little lower volatility and a little more range since it's a little bit denser liquid and and doesn't ignite quite so quickly. You really spit it out there. Um, I've got to get my hands on one. They, you know, they're not really interested in a whole lot more media coverage. They're pretty saturated, and, and I'm I'm glad that they've done so. But uh, they're just down the street here in Portland. I've got to go get one. They said it was like 400 bucks dealer cost. I've got to find an excuse. I got to burn something useful for cleaning out Japanese pillboxes. <laughs> yep, or industrial lawns. You know, whatever you've got lying around that just needs to go now. Um, also down the street, Banner. Um, they've got their new full bore boot. I've done a lot of work with Dan over the last couple of years. I did a factory tour. They're they're always quick to send out new products because uh, I guess the boot market's pretty tough to really get an edge in. But uh, I'm excited to check that out. It's, it's a newer, bigger, beefier, yet lighter boot. Um, I don't have all the specs. I'm excited to check it out. Um, <clears throat> Fostec, you know, they're well known. They've got that real badass shotgun. They've got the Echo Trigger and the... Uh, in the last couple of years, they've dipped into the lightweight AR market, making magnesium parts. Um, back when they were, geez, it was Magtech. They they had they bought another company's magnesium lower um, equipment. And uh, the problem with the old company, they were having magnesium lowers split on them, so they're hyper light, but they're they were self-destructive. And then now they've got a magnesium aluminum alloy, so these lowers are incredibly light. I mean, you pick one up and it feels like a little handful of paper clips. Um, and now they've got them to where they should be a lot more durable. Um, one of the bigger announcements, Glock, you know, they came out with their 43X. It's just like their 48, the, uh, the subcompact, single-stack, 9mm. This one has a little bit of the extended slim frame, a little bit higher capacity. Um, still a bit short on the slide, so it should be a good carry gun. I got to handle one, but uh, the line was too long at range day. Uh, that was a, a busy, busy booth. 5.11, every year they come out with cool gear, and, and I got to talk with their uh, their backpack designer. I forget his name. I think it was Scott. He was a he was a great guy, and we had about a two-hour conversation of all nice. the line of their backpacks, the Apex line. Um, and they're, they're really cool. They're old, and there's so many layers. But all the way from why they chose this denier fabric all the way to what is it like tweet as a stock resistance um but they can use a lighter fabric and get away with it there's extra zippers so that way no matter if you if you cam your zipper all the way to the right there's still another one over on the left wherever you reach you're going to have something they've even got a couple of hidden pockets that they've used to mm, bypass certain areas with uh with ease um the 511 apex i think they have the the 12 hour the 24 and, and i got the 72 um a rough estimate of how long you could you could survive out in the field with that thing, but uh, it's a it's a really comfortable piece of gear. I'm excited to. I've only had it for a couple of weeks now, of course, but I really want to dig into that thing and see what it can do. And one of the last things I saw was pretty cool. I went to the Norma booth, you know, the Swedish Ammo, um, owned by their their parent company Ruag Ammo Tech. Um, they had a lot of good ammo there. I mean, they're they're really pushing hard. They all of those brands in the Norma and, and Ruag line have kind of gone under under the level, so to speak, uh, last few years. I haven't had a lot of publicity, not a lot of big releases, and now they're back and they're pushing a ton of new products. 
um, all the way from this super quality 17 HMR match grade stuff. I, I was pinging a one inch steel circle at 100 yards with no problem, just holding over with little iron sights, um, all the way up to their Norma um, Broad Strike new hunting line. It's a boat tail, you know, fish design, polymer tip. It still expands. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good heavy animal round. Uh, there were a few other things I saw. I mean, there was a ton of other stuff I saw, and, and it's really nice to go and see all the people you've been working with over the years and, yeah. and really touch base and get a good briefing of what's new, and, and you make a lot of contacts and, and really get to get a whole year's worth of gear lined up to review in one, one little show. That's for sure. Any uh, trends in the industry? I mean, I, I think you mentioned that, you know, things are getting a little bit lighter, a little bit more expensive. Uh, but are there any other, like, prevailing trends that you see as far as where, um, I guess you could say, the tactical gear or, um, you know, tactical firearms market is heading, you know, over maybe the next 12 to 24 months? Sure. The, the gear, um, it seems like a lot of people are going back to the uh, – the less than tactical approach. I mean, every, every company is going to have their, their tactical Timmy lineup of flat, dark earth and olive drab and, and Molly gear everywhere. But a lot of companies are coming out with a little bit more of discrete designs, mm-hmm. um, backpacks that don't look like backpacks. They don't have yep. patch squares of Velcro all over the place. And, and they're usually in a more muted coloring, a wolf gray gaining a lot of popularity because it looks more casual. Yeah. Um, 511's apex line comes in a nice blue and it does have a, a hex grid on the back, which st- stands out a little less than the, uh, the Molly writing, but uh, they also let me know they were going to come out with kind of a, a cover patch. So essentially like a six by eight inch flap of fabric with Velcro on the back. So it covers up that entire hex grid of Molly webbing. Um, yeah. I, the whole backpack. I have, a, uh, I have a rucksack made by uh, Kifaru. Uh, which is a terrific rucksack. I paid a lot of money for it, but, but it's awesome. And the only problem with it is it's all tacticled out. It's got like the, the Molly webbing on it. It's, you know, it's in khaki or, or whatever, coyote, whatever the color they call it. Uh, so, I mean, I don't travel really overseas with it for that reason. I mean, it just looks too paramilitary. You know, it's uh, whether you're going to get detained by somebody going through customs because of that or... It, I feel like it just paints a target on your back too. If for, you know, um, you know, criminals or terrorists or whoever, I mean, they look at that and they say, ah, oh, that guy must be in the military. Absolutely. You know, anytime you go traveling overseas, you don't want to stand out for any of the wrong reasons. And, uh, looking like somebody who might be a target or should be a target to certain groups. That's a quick way to stand out of the crowd in all the wrong ways. Uh, they, they do make some more civilian looking backpacks now and like, um, like day packs, but they're still kind of paramilitary looking. I mean, w- what about you, Doug? Do you have any like go-to brands, whether it's tactical or just like outdoor gear? Um, you know, I know you're, you're an active dude. Yeah. I mean, one of the nice things about the air force was that we pretty much got everything we got like tactical, tactical gear wise. We got the civilian version as well. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Forget like the the security reasons. Like I just don't, I don't feel right traveling. You know, commercial aircraft like wearing anything that looks military because it, it, only something bad can happen, right? Nothing good happens when you engage in a <laughs> conversation with, with tactical gear, and it's just like I don't like the the attention. And I mean, there was a time, whatever, like ten, fifteen years ago, when you had contractors or like special ops guys, and they would wear like tactical civilian clothes but have a beard and it was like they were fooling people but everyone in the, the chow hall even the, the person who's been working there for two weeks knows exactly who the special ops guys are so you're not fooling anybody with your you know mollied out like tan backpack so um 
Yeah, I would say, like, luckily I got enough gear where I could get the civilian version of whatever tactical gear we were initially issued. And so a lot of it was more like civilian mountaineering gear, um, really, really versatile and just holds up to the weather and the elements, but doesn't draw a lot of attention. And if it does, somebody's probably going to say, hey, are you a climber? They're not going to say, oh, are you, like, with the military? And I'd rather pretend to be a climber than, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember, you know, like, I think my first deployment to Afghanistan, and we all had our cold weather gear was, like, Poly Pro, and then what was the other system? It was, like, the Black Fleece. Yes. That was the cool new thing. Uh, you, do you know what I'm talking about, Jens? Yeah, the left system, I think. What was it called? Or Spears Gear. Leps yeah, or Spears yeah. Gear or Leps yep, yep. or, or the Ninja Gear. Yep, that's it. Um, but yeah, the Air Force guys had like brand new mountain hardware. Like they were like ready to go climb, climb Mount Everest or something like yeah, that. I wore it here today. I've got my Arcteryx uh, <laughs> guide patrol jacket and my black diamond, uh, you know, fleece there. So yeah. Shit. You, sorry. you know, what's the irony of this, by the way, is that you guys are all, you know, former military guys looking to look civilian and then you always see the civilian guys who want to look like they're totally that's tactical yeah. as well. And then there's also just like the the fashion stuff today of like I was actually at a Chick Fil A the other week, right? And I saw a black dude who was probably about like I don't know eighteen twenty years old wearing this jacket that had a bunch of military patches and it had like a Mac V Sog patch. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Yeah, you know, he probably didn't even know what Mac V Sog was. Who knows? But it's it's just like that's become like a fashionable thing. So it's 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 kind of just well, kind of funny that you guys. Are like, I don't want to look like I'm you know military, but it, the explanation for why and the suspicion makes sense. So. It's amazing too how many people here in uh, in New York City are master sergeants in the Air Force wearing the old <laughs> yep. BDUs, you know, with the uh, the chevrons, and it's like wow, like that's the, our uniform of 15 years ago. So who knows? Like I probably have a, a teammate who you know threw out their BDUs, and now someone's wearing it here in New York I, City. I see a lot of assault packs in New York City. A lot of people carrying them, and I, and I don't think they were in the military. I think it's just practical or or it looks cool. I don't know what it is, but. And then also, if you ran into like hipsters where you live in Brooklyn, they'd be like, "Just because I'm dressed this way doesn't mean I'm former military." <laughs> well, it's, it's like I've said in the past, like how ridiculous is it that the military is constantly looking at the corporate world to figure out like tips and tricks. How can we better lead our men? But then meanwhile, the corporate world is like, Oh, we need to get like general McChrystal in here to teach us how military leadership is like, who the fuck is teaching who? <laughs> Everyone's trying to solve the same problems. It's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, nothing nothing is unique. No one's encountering these truly unique issues that no one else is solving. I mean, everyone's struggling to deal with the same, same problems for sure. Yeah. So, so Jens, before we let you go, um, I also want to hear about, of course, the crate club party, um, Oasis for villains. How was that? That was pretty wild. Uh, every time crate club throws on a party, it's uh, it's a little bit mind boggling. I'm a, I'm a pretty small town guy of, uh, modest means. And I walk into this place and, uh, it's at the end of this low, lonely, deserted street, and you wouldn't even know that there's this massive mansion back there. And all of a sudden, you know, on the horizon, you see these huge gates. You approach, and there's a security guard out front. And uh, we see a, a big, leggy blonde walking in. And we say, well, I figure this is probably the place. And so we show our passes we got in. And this place was sprawling. I mean, the pool had its own swimming pool. The hot tub had an annex hot tub. The, the place was massive, and it was, it was beautiful. I mean, many, many people there um, a lot of cool folks got to meet folks from h&k got to meet our new uh cfo of hurricane group Stu. great guy um, we had a good time there was a yeah it was some a poker table there picturing so i sat down with a couple japanese guys and we did a little gambling even though none of us knew much about uh 
poker. We got through the basics, I suppose, but James Bond, we were not. Um, <laughs> I'm we just a good time, picturing you know, like, you know, gift bags to hand out. Where there were like Russian oligarchs and Serbian war criminals and, uh, and you were playing cards with the Yakuza. Yeah, I'd like to picture it that way, but, uh, in reality, it was probably just a really cool group of, of normal folk. Um, <laughs> you know, knowing knowing no the other businesses giraffe. that uh, were co-hosting there, or some of them at least, there were a few car dealerships from Vegas and stuff like that co-sponsoring. Nice. Um, it was just a really cool group of people. You know, you'd think that it was a bunch of millionaires themselves, but most of them were just guys like us, just happy to be at such an awesome party. And, you know, seeing my editor, Scott Whitner, go into the, the back secret room there with Gray Man. Um, Back secret room. This is what, what goes on there. <laughs> I've seen eyes shut. <laughs> what goes on at the secret room, Jens? <laughs> I don't. I'm not allowed. And to be honest with you, I probably shouldn't be allowed in there. <laughs> now I'm, I'm very curious. I did see pictures of him like getting a suit fitted. Was there like there was like a seamstress yeah. there or something? Yeah, uh, Gray Man. Um, I don't know if it's Gray Man Tactical or just Gray Man and Co. Um, they're a, a suit manufacturer and, and they make some fantastic suits, but a lot of their stuff isn't available or hasn't been available on the civilian market, as I understand it. Um, they've done a lot of government work, State Department, stuff like that, and, and their suits are, are really designed around that. So you have RFID-blocking pockets. You have um, slash-resistant sleeves and a little bit more stretch in the shoulders in case you need to draw a sidearm. Um, really well thought out, kind of the James Bond suit. And uh, Scott, he got a little discount code and went and got fitted for a suit. Um, and I saw a couple of their suits that looked fantastic. That's very cool, man. And then I guess last thing before we wrap up, since we got Doug here and I want to get into everything with him, were you at the uh, Cry Precision Party? Because I know that every year is always a blast. I had an invite, and I had one last year as well. I've kind of made a, a habit out of getting ready to go and then crashing on the couch and falling asleep and sleeping right through it. Um, no, I didn't go. I, I got ah. to see a couple of videos and, and pictures when, when Scott and our other writer, Eric Meisner, came back from the party. It looked like a pretty wild event, but I got to admit, I've, it's not my scene so much. I have. I like my quiet nights and, and early bedtime, so I'm getting old. I'm, I'm like that, too. I had, a, I had a good time at the one that I went to. It was the year it was the Mario Kart theme. And then also, it's just funny to think back. She is married now, but I remember on the podcast, it became like an inside thing of... Uh, that I had this crush on the Olympic shooter, Amanda Fur that we would have on. And I was like, all right, I'm finally going to get to hang out with this girl at Chacho. And I met her at uh, the Cry Precision Party. It was a, it was a very fun time. But, uh, yeah, man, I love, that was – and I and I love Mario Karts. The Mario Kart theme was cool. I saw people dressed up as, like, Luigi and Mario. I have a picture with Amanda Fur where you have people in the background dressed as, like, Luigi and the princess. Um, yeah. She's no longer Amanda Fur. She's Amanda something else because she's married. But, yeah. All right. I remember her. I always, always have great parties. Back in the day, she was on a few episodes. Cool, man. Well, I, I appreciate the um, recap of everything, and, and any guy who's a gear enthusiast is going to want to hear all about it. And I know at the loadout, at uh, loadoutroom.com, you could see all of that. Anything else that you're, uh, you're promoting? Nope. I'm, I'm excited to dig into some of these reviews. I mean, it's, it's really cool to see a lot of the, the new stuff, but uh, it's hard to tell what's, what's form over function and what's the other way around. So I got to get my hands on some of the stuff and beat the crap out of it. So we'll see. Awesome, man. Admittedly, sometimes you guys have said that I, I forget about loadout room on this podcast. And it's also because none of the guys <laughs> live around. Oh, here. we got to have you so. guys on the show uh, more consistently. Sure. I'll jump in here in a couple of months and 
give you a little update on, on what I saw at the show that's ended up being a good product. All right. Perfect. Cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate you coming on. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. All right. Thanks, Jens. All right. Well, with that, I want to get more into your background. I know that you gave like the, the quick recap. And also, I want to hear about you guys uh, going to Columbia and all that. But let's just hear like a little bit more in detail about being a PJ because we don't have many guys with your background on the show. Yeah. So uh, obviously, it's not one of the more publicized type of jobs in the special operations community. And how I found out about it was I was a senior in college in, in September of 2001. And obviously, 9-11 happened then. I wasn't one of those people who was like, oh, 9-11 happened. I'm going to join the military. That's but like the, Jack. Right, yeah. Sort in, of, right? In a sense, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, we're about the same age, I guess. But so I was a senior in high school. Oh, in high school? Were you yeah. really? Okay, so I'm older than you then. Yeah, right. you, I, I would think, yeah. Yeah, you have a more distinguished beard, though. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, anyway, so like, there was a lot more publicity and stories about the military because the military sort of became a lot more relevant after 9-11 once we went into Afghanistan. And I saw like, you know... I think it was a story on one of the news stations about pararescue. Um, and at the time, I was pre-med, applying to medical schools and interviewing at medical schools. And I, I had always been intrigued by some of the special operations types jobs in the military because I, I liked the idea of like that physical and mental challenge. But there wasn't really a particular job that appealed to me as far as like, because, yeah, the challenge and the selection is great and you sort of prove something to yourself, but you still have to do a job ultimately. And I didn't, there wasn't a job that I really liked that much. And then when I found out about pararescue, it combined kind of that, you know, the, the physical challenge with some of the uh, the more medical emphasis. So it was, it was I think, because of 9-11, there was more exposure to the military. And then when I found out about pararescue, you know, when I was initially exposed to it, I was intrigued and kept reading about it and researching it. And the more I learned about it, the more intrigued I became to the point that I decided to, you know, not go the, the medical school route and to join the Air Force, much to my parents' surprise. Um, they were supportive, but, you know, kind of wished that somebody else's kid had done it, like all military parents, you know, um, not that, not unique there. But so initially I went to an active duty. I knew nothing about the military. Like most people who want to join, you kind of go in, you're like, I want to do this. So I called an active duty recruiter in my area and I was like, he's like, why do you want to join the Air Force? And I'm like, I want to be a PJ. And he actually tried to talk me out of it. He's like, well, it's got a pretty high attrition rate. Most people don't make it you should consider doing something else. And I'm like, I'm, I only want to, I, I understand that if I don't qualify, I'm subject to the mercy of the air force. It <laughs> might be reclassified to whatever job, but I at least want a, a contract where I, I'm going to have the opportunity to at least try out for it. And he's like, all right, like, let me call you back in whatever a week. And so a week went by and I called, left a message like, Hey, we're supposed to follow up. And this went on for a few more weeks to the point that I just didn't hear back. So it, it was almost a blessing in disguise because that forced me to do more research. And that's when I found out about how you can actually join the guard and be a PJ. And I grew up on Long Island and there's where, a, where on Long Island, by the way, so uh, like Nassau County, Manhasset. So it's like, I, dude, I'm, I'm from Manhasset. Are you so, really? Yeah. Did you go to Manhasset high school? Yes, I did. What year did you graduate? 2004. All right. I'm 98. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that is. <laughs> I did not know that. Okay. So it's you guys funny. are getting live TV. Like, yeah. you know, what's funny by the way. Well, not this, I shouldn't say funny, but interesting, you know, because we were just talking about the 9-11 thing. You, you know the, um, you know, tower, the top of the tower? Yeah. Um, when 9-11 happened, I had a class there, Mr. Blyschool's English class. I don't know if you remember Tony Blyschool. Yeah. Very um, passionate reader. Yeah. That, but, uh, yeah, so I, I was up there, and you could see the smoke from the towers from from the top of the tower at Manhasset. Really? Yeah, it was, it was pretty eerie. But it, anyway, I mean, that's Yeah, and obviously world. Manhasset was a very hard-hit community. I mean, you hear the stories of... On 9-11, like that evening, like all the cars that were still in the parking lot. And um, I was I was a lifeguard 
at a country club in Manhasset the summer before 9-11. I just remember seeing, you know, kids playing with their families and there were a couple of families from that pool that I lifeguarded at where the next year when I also lifeguarded after I graduated college, well, trying to segue into the military where you're seeing these kids who, you know, the year before that they're father was throwing them around in the pool and then that yeah. wasn't happening so it's holy it, shit honestly, oh, I, I believe it yeah. was hit the hardest of just about any it's town possible. it's been documented yeah because there's been stories on manhasset i mean there's just there's a lot of people from manhasset who worked on wall street and would make the commute every day someone i knew chris Quackenbush, yeah. like a big hedge fund guy yeah uh who passed away i there's, think there were a couple places in queens too that got hit really hard where firefighters lived yeah jersey yeah, as well there's a like lot ro- of the rockaways for the firefighters yeah new jersey suburbs the same thing a lot of new jersey suburban uh you know dads who commute to new york who are hedge fund guys yeah, wall yeah. street guys right yeah. same in the in the area i grew up in westchester people taking the metro north back and forth yeah but so and that's so basically, like, I had this sort of negligent recruiter, which ended up, like I said, working to my benefit because the more research I did, when I found out about the, the guard option, there was actually a guard unit an hour east of where I grew up in West Hampton. And, you know, so that I read the, ended up being the perfect storm because that, the, the Long Island PJ unit was featured in that. And so I'm like, oh, so now it's, it's a PJ unit. It's the guard. So you actually get to pick your duty station. There happens to be a duty station an hour from where I grew up. And kind of one of the selling points of the Guard was that they did domestic civilian rescues in addition to being deployed and doing the combat search and rescue. So uh, the New York unit civilian-wise, rescue-wise, wasn't as active as like maybe the team in Alaska where you've got people getting into trouble all the time. But that was, you know, between the potential for civilian rescues, the fact that it, it was right in my backyard. Yeah. Um, and I, I like the idea of the Guard and that I always went in initially with the intention, like, I'm going to do this full time. But there's the option where you can kind of do as much or as little as you want once you sort of go through your initial uh, selection and training and then you do, you know, go, go on a deployment or two, you have the option of going part-time. And, you know, so to me, that's the coolest job in the world. It's like I, a part-time PJ. I mean, ultimately, I went to grad school for physical therapy while on the guard, and that was kind of like my summer job. So it's a great way to make extra money and do fun things. And I still was deploying and very active. And I mean, it, it's tough to maintain your proficiency as a part-timer because even when you're full-time in any soft job, you, you don't have enough time to do everything you need to do. And I think, you know, unless you're maybe at like a, a really high-level unit where the funding and the time and the support are conducive to it, like you can never really train enough. So that became a little bit of a challenge. But the guard, once I found out about it, was sort of a, a no-brainer. And when I called the guard unit, I mean, the recruiter is like, yeah, you can let's take a, a PT test tomorrow, you know? So it's like they're much more responsive too. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, a case where the military sort of bureaucracy worked to my favor. And we went uh, to school with a, a couple of guys. Well, there was a number of guys who were in the Special Forces National Guard. And, I mean, I think it worked out pretty well for them. I even met a FDNY guy who's in the SF National Guard. Really? He's an actual, yeah, an actual firefighter. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, now, once the, the 9-11 kicked off, I mean, there wasn't really the stigma with the Guard where I don't know what it was like in the soft community, but prior to 9-11, you know, the, the Guard didn't really, wasn't, yeah, asked to do that much. Yeah. But I mean, our, our deployment cycle was pretty much on par with active duty. The, the, the length of the cycle was the same, the train ups and all that. And when you go overseas, you're held to the same standard. So, um, and a lot of times the guard units had more experienced people. Like you might have, you had a lot of people who maybe did one or two tours on active duty. So it was good and it was bad. It was good because we had a lot of experience, but it was also very top heavy. Um, where, you know, like sometimes you can have too many people who are experienced on a particular team or on, on a mission. But, um, yeah, so I, like there was no 
de- degradation in skill or the, the quality of, I think, what, what was being offered by the guard was on par with active duty, and it allowed for more flexibility. So that's kind of how I ended up doing that. And then I spent um, between full and part-time service 13 years. Wow. it's a long time. Yeah. And I, I segued it into physical therapy when I knew I didn't want to make a career out of it. And actually, like after I graduated physical therapy school, before I could even start a job, I had to go on a deployment. I went to the, the Horn of Africa. And so that set me back, you know, career-wise. I don't want to say set back like it was like a negative thing, but yeah, yeah. like, you know, six months. Um, and I tried to run my own practice and then do the the guard thing. And it like, that's where it became tough. Because if, if you have like a, you know, government or a civil service job, like they're required to give you military leave and it's much more conducive to you can't really do one weekend a month and two weeks a year and be a PJ. I think it, to do it well and be proficient requires a couple months a year of training. And when you're running your own business and getting paid by the hour, right, right. you're basically starting over every time you come back from one of those deployments or like a long training trip. So it just became too difficult to do bo- both, but there's definitely things about it that I miss. And there's you know experience I wouldn't trade for anything. Still really close with the guys because they're only an hour away from where I work. And in, in the capacity that I am now as a physical therapist and with some of the performance stuff, I'm still very much involved in the community, whether it's like with PJ or, or soft. So I think that's help with the transition because if I had to be totally cold turkey detachment, it would be tough. Just like, you know, what you, what you experience, Jack, as a, a host doing this. Yeah. Just pop smoke. You leave, you know, brag or whatever, wherever the hell you are. And, but again, if you were an SF, a lot of guys can transition into the national guard. And I know a bunch of people have done that. If you're in like ranger battalion or something like that, when you're out, you're out. Yeah. Cause there isn't really a guard but ranger battalion. Right? There, yeah. And there, there are very few national guard infantry units. Yeah. Um, you can still leave the ranger battalion and go be in the national guard. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. Um, maybe you'd have to reclass. I don't know, but yeah. Going back to where we're from, I, I was just curious of this. There's, there's pretty much no soft community in Manhattan, but the only guy that I could think of that's probably, I think your age, give or take a, a year or something was James Regan. I know exactly. You were going to say that. I'm yeah. wearing the bracelet. Oh, wow. I didn't, yeah, I, 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 I honestly um, didn't see. I mean, he's just a guy who's he was in my grade. We, we grew oh, up wow. together and he, he ended up going to uh Chaminade high school, which was like a private yeah. Catholic school, maybe sister, 15, 20 minutes away. I, I didn't know you guys knew him yes yeah, so i i played I didn't like, personally know his sister was in my grade but you know it's well, just, he's got two sisters okay so i one yeah. of them was in my grade but it's just yeah. when you think of special ops guys from manhasset the only name i honestly think of is james regan because there's a road named after him there's a monument for guys killed in combat in manhasset and the only name you see from the current war is James Regan. So, yeah, that's, I, I mean, I'm not surprised that, that you know him, but yeah, let's get into it. We, we grew up together, played like CYO basketball together, um, and there was two public elementary schools in Manhasset. So we went to different elementary schools. Shelter but, Rock. Yeah, through like Monkey sports, I, I knew him pretty well. Um, and then he ended up going to the, the, the Catholic high school, and I went to the public high school. But, I mean, speaking of it, I actually went to my senior prom with his, um, his sister that's, older than, than you are. Um, and ironically enough, it was at windows in the world and the world trade center. So to think wow. that, you know, I'm going to my senior prom with his sister and then, a, you know, a couple of years later, the towers fall. And I mean, maybe even if it wasn't directly, like it's probably safe to say that somebody from Manhasset who had just got into law school probably would not have joined the military if not for something like nine 11. I know that he was uh, inspired by that. And then, you know, sadly, he was killed in, in Iraq a, a couple of years after that. Um, 
But I, I don't know if you're familiar with the work that his father has done. So his father was like in the finance community here in Manhattan and started a, a charity called uh, Lead the Way Fund, which mm-hmm. is basically to kind of fill in some of the gaps between like what the government provides and then what the families of rangers uh, who are like injured or killed in combat need. So, I mean, his charity is doing things like building like adaptive houses for people who maybe like the, where the government didn't That's provide great. some of those services. He's raised quite a bit of money. I mean, he's had fundraisers like on the Intrepid here in Manhattan, which is, you know, that's, that's a pretty high profile place on a venue because Jimmy Regan played lacrosse for Duke. Mike Krzyzewski was the keynote speaker. So, I mean, he's, he's drawn a lot of attention, uh, for some of the, for the, for this cause. And like, there's a lot of ways to handle that kind of tragedy. And I can't imagine being a father and having to, to bury your son. And I mean, he would be totally justified just not wanting anything to do with the military and, and totally separating himself from it. But like to turn that kind of a tragedy into, into what he has and to, to have done so much good for the community. So I can't, I mean, I didn't know you were going to ask me this. It's totally spontaneous. Yeah. I, I just can't say enough good things about Lead the Way and, and Mr. Regan, who's James Regan, and that just the work that they've done. It's truly, uh, truly incredible. And like, you know, just how all, all these things are kind of tied together and how small the world is. When I was at Balad for my first deployment, there was like a picture of, you know, all the people who operated out of Balad at the time who were, you know, killed in operations. And so, like, to get to Balad, to go on the talk, and then to see Jimmy's picture on the wall, I mean, the, the world's a large place, but sometimes it can follow you wherever you go. And that was, uh, you know, it's a good reminder, like, obviously, first deployment, this shit's for real. Uh, but at the same time, sort of like, all right, like, y- you're inspired. Like, this is, uh, you know, they could kill one of your friends. So, like, let's go. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, yeah, I I didn't know him personally. I, I, I knew of him. And I, I, I think... I was in Griffin Group down in Florida when I found out about that. And actually, another guy who I was in Ranger Battalion with, uh, Sean, uh, who's a uh, warrant officer now, he uh, told me he mentioned something in passing about about Regan having been killed. I was like, "What? Really? Yeah, it sucks." Yeah, well, I mean, Leo's been on the podcast for Leo Jenkins, who knew James Regan. But the fact that you knew him as like a younger kid, people yeah, might be yeah. curious as. He's a name that a lot of people in this community have read about. What type of a guy was Jimmy Regan? Yeah, I mean, it's always e- like easy to say like great things about people after the fact, but I can legitimately say like <laughs> truly like one of those people that everybody liked. You know, when, when you're like in high school or junior high, like especially guys can be like assholes and they can, you know, you, you're trying to fit in with certain crowds and to fit in with certain crowds, you have to treat other crowds a certain way. Jimmy was universally liked by everybody because he was just truly a nice guy, like more sort of quiet, but also very sort of intense and focused, even at a, at a very young age. And, um, I think that reputation carried him. I mean, everybody that I talked to in Ranger Battalion said the same thing where it's just like one of those guys where just not, not a lot of bravado, but just inspires you through his actions. And, uh, he was always like that. And I I can truly say that even after the fact, like, yeah, that's, that's just the kind of guy he was. Well, I mean, as sad as it is that, you know, he, he was lost. I mean, it's, great that he's still remembered in this way yeah and he always i mean if his dad has anything to do with it he always will be and yeah, uh yeah you know and i think that's a good thing that's amazing um i guess you know since what ian was saying before we have a, a an unfortunate lack of air force guys on the podcast we always end up talking a lot of marines i don't know how marines sneak on here all the time. especially in columbia <laughs> right yeah where you at <laughs> um a lot of army dudes um 
but not not enough uh, Air Force guys. Definitely not enough um, guys from the Air Force special operations community. Other than you know, Mike Lampy is gonna. Um, I, I think we have him scheduled to come on again, yeah, don't yeah. we? It's a legend right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bull Simmons Award. Isn't uh, is he the one who like drove the motorcycle into? Iran? Uh, he, he may have. He was definitely... Desert One? Before was, Desert One? He was definitely at Desert One. Okay. So we, we have to do the second part of the interview. We did the first part, and we got up to, like, Laos. Okay. <laughs> we didn't even get it. But he yeah. was he was in... You know, he was there for the whole genesis of special operations and special operations command. So we have to... Um, we're going to do part two of that. Um, but I was wondering if you could get a little bit into... Um, what pararescue is because I feel like everyone's kind of heard of it, but there are, are a variety of people listening to this podcast. Some of them are, um, you know, former special operations guys who know who you are and what these guys do. But then there's also a lot of like young guys who are like 18. They're in the position me or you were in at one right. time. And they're like, what the fuck do I want to do with my life? Yeah, yeah. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what PJs are, what their mission is. Um, so people can hear it from the horse's mouth. Yeah, I mean, in special operations, like, the unifying thing is, okay, you're probably going to get some form of parachute training, maybe dive training. You're going to have, you know, basic small unit tactics training. Um, And then, obviously, every special operations unit or team has its own sort of identity. So in in pararescue, the identity is technical rescue and, and medicine. So what would differentiate a PJ from even, like, an 18 Delta special forces medic or a SEAL or like a Marine corpsman is that if you're a, a medic on like an, on an ODA, you're not going into a mission necessarily with the expectation that you're going to be medically treating somebody. You, you're effectively a shooter first and you're going in really hoping that you don't have to do any medical treatment at right, all. Right. 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 Because like, in an ideal world, a, an a 18 Delta or a SEAL corpsman would never have to treat anybody. Right. As a, as a PJ, you're not, for the most part, you know, unless you're in a certain type of unit where maybe you're embedded with an assault team and you're serving as the medic on the assault team, because in a lot of like, you know, the higher level army and, and Navy units, the corpsmen don't want to do any medicine. They want to be shooters. Um, and at that level, they're trained to be truly shooters first and their medicine kind of gets discarded. And that's where that you might have a PJ who basically is the, effectively the corpsman on those, on those hits. But a PJ team operating unilaterally like you, you don't have a mission unless something bad happens to somebody. Now, the exception to that is if there's more of like a, a technical rescue or a precious cargo type scenario. Like half the missions that I had overseas were recovering, you know, sensitive items from like from an aircraft. So that is a situation where you wouldn't be doing any medical treatment. But if you're going to be working with human beings on the ground outside of your own team, something bad has to happen to somebody for you to get called upon. So what the what technical rescue means is you know, say like the helicopter crashes, for the most part, when a helicopter crashes, the patients don't just present themselves to you. Like right. you have to go they're not, into... They're the not heli- just laying on the forest floor. They're not just laying there, floor, right. Yeah. So like even on a, on a hit, like if someone gets shot, there's no extrication. It's like they're right next to you and you go up to them and you tr- put them behind cover and treat them and evac them. But in a technical rescue, it re- usually requires some type of like an extrication to gain access to those survivors if there are any. So that's why PGs will carry extrication equipment that maybe like what a, a fire department would carry, but obviously a, a much smaller, more compact version so they can carry it on their backs. So extrication is a huge part of the technical rescue. Then there's things like, um, you know, like rope rescue. So basically anywhere a DOD asset can get into trouble, a PG has to be able to go there. So that can include 
some someone gets caught in the mountain somewhere and you know you have to maybe perform like lower yourself to a survivor and then create a mechanical advantage system with the ropes to raise that person up so um it's cool that it provides a, a huge variety of, of rescue skills combined with the uh with the medicine but you know in most situations you're there to first extricate and then stabilize a patient and that usually requires some kind of technical rescue expertise along with the medical piece so there's obviously a lot of overlap and redundancy between some of the soft teams, but the, I think what differentiates pararescue is like generally your missions are deliberately for personnel recovery or like a mass casualty incident or some kind of a technical rescue versus you're overtly looking for a confrontation and then you're only on call if something, you know, if someone gets like shot or, you know, or hurt on the mission. Um, you, you're, you're going in for the most part knowing that something bad has already happened to somebody. And that obviously changes how you plan and it changes the tactics. Um, that's if PJs operate unilaterally. There are some PJs, like I said, who maybe get farmed out to a particular special operations unit and they serve as like more of a traditional medic type role, but they're still going to carry all of their extrication equipment and technical gear because they, they have that capability. So they want to bring that to the fight as well. So hopefully that kind of answered the, uh, the question. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I think that's worth mentioning is, you know, all of you guys are dive and free fall qualified, right? right. Yeah. Because, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the reason being because you have to get where we are. So if yep. uh, ODA gets into trouble and somebody gets hurt, you need to be able to get to whatever shit they got into. <laughs> yeah. And the weird thing with the dive is I never had a dive mission, but there's been a lot of dive missions actually like in, in Iraq where like a vehicle was on a bridge crossing a river IED hits it. Now the vehicle's fallen into the Tigris River or whatever. And I mean, usually dive missions are recoveries, which is, you know, not, right, not ideal, right. but to bring the, bring the bodies back, there's been a, quite a few search dives and whether it was like Iraq or Afghanistan or, you know, some kind of a UAV crashes, you know, off the coast of Africa. So there have been quite a few dive missions. Um, I would say probably PJs have been the most active in the soft community doing dive missions because for the most part, there haven't been too many dive infills yeah. with some of the more it's, as far as like units. combat diver or underwater yeah. demolitions. I mean, we haven't seen that really yeah. much, if all. <laughs> and to be like transparent, like mo- the dives that PJs are doing are not like combat the combat dives, dive yeah, scenario yeah. where, uh, you know, we, we went to dive school and spent four weeks doing closed circuit, but we didn't really train it that much because for the most part, we're doing recoveries where it is a little bit more overt. You're going to have security. And I mean, you're not, you know, you're not going to like, you're not doing a recovery mission while like bullets are going off. Right, right, you, you know? right. <laughs> but it is in an austere environment. Yeah, I mean, it sucks. It's dark and it's murky and it's not, you know, it's usually cold. I mean, it's like, it's not recreational scuba diving. The military <laughs> tends to take the fun out of a lot of yes, things, whether do. it's <laughs> skydiving or scuba diving. And that's why like, I'm not been into diving even after having gotten out because I didn't have like great experiences <laughs> with it. It's usually throwing up on a boat. And then going down to the cold water where I can't see and putting my hand on the ground and doing a search pattern and looking for something. Uh, the free fall course is probably like the most fun, definitely the most fun course I went to in the army. But yeah, even then it's like, oh, you like, you like skydiving? All right, we're going to uh, put you on oxygen. Right. Uh, you're going to jump at 18,000 feet. Uh, we're going to do it at night. And uh, here's uh, 90 pounds of shit to strap to your body. We're going to, you know, you just, you just kind of waddle to the ramp and just fall out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was lucky. I went to the, uh, the Navy free fall course. Oh, fuck you, Doug. So, you know, you're staying, you're staying at a hotel in Chula Vista, which is right outside San Diego. And I knew right away that it was different than the Army school because the first day there was the threat of bad weather. There wasn't, it wasn't like a, it was like 40% chance of rain and, you know, poor visibility and low ceilings. And so we got a call from somebody at the school, like before we'd even met them, like, 
hey, the whole training is canceled for today because it might rain. Whereas if you're at an army course, you're, you're going to stay there till 1700, no matter what. Well, I'll tell you, they were pretty good about it out at Yuma. Um, and, and there wasn't rain out in Yuma, Arizona, but if the winds are too high, they'll just say there were days when they we called came, it early. Yeah. There were days okay. when we came in and it was like 9am and they're like, just go back. You're, you guys have released for the day. That's Come cool. Back tomorrow. All right. uh, I mean, I guess because of the high winds and because we're inexperienced students there, it's like, eh, I don't want to mess around. With yeah. This. But yeah, and so you mentioned that the dive and the free fall capability. I mean, if we're being honest, like most, there, there have been too many free fall missions um, in, in the last like 10 years. There have been a couple, but it's like, yeah. it's one of those things where you're, you train for it a lot and it takes up, I think, a disproportional amount of your training time for something that you may never do, but you still have to train it. But that's where the civilian stuff comes in because a lot of PJs are more likely to do a, a civilian free fall or parachuting mission than they are a combat one, especially we've been established in some of these theaters for so long that there really isn't much need for a jump capability. And now we have helicopters like the CV-22 with longer range. But like in the Alaska unit, you know, you've got all these people, a lot of private pilots, they crash into a glacier. And the only way to get there or to get there quickly enough is to is to jump. So like that, you know, to know gets quite a few jump missions. I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. I wanted to ask you about yeah. that because I mean, the both static line and free fall. I mean, it has it gives you this capability of getting into some pretty austere locations. Right. Uh, uh, is that that is a capability that gets used for rescue missions? Yeah. Um, even in California, there's a unit right in like Silicon Valley there. I think they actually share the airport with Google. They've gotten a, a few jump missions off the coast of uh, of Mexico and off California, really? where you know it's a Rams mission usually, where um, you have the, the Zodiac, you kind of deflate it, fold it up, put some cargo netting around it. It has an engine attached to it. You know, put a big chute on it, throw it out the plane, jump out after it, get in the water, undo the cargo netting, um, swim out the nose, and then inflate your scuba tank, and then you've you know dewatered the engine and you're and you're off. Um, you know, usually in a civilian situation, there isn't much of a need for the free fall capability per se. And now that they have the square shoots, but when they only have the round shoots and that was the only way to do static line, then you're probably better off even doing, a, even though free fall is a little bit more risky because of the canopy control, which right. if you're jumping into a, like a small glacier a or a small, small DZ, you want that. So now with the, um, they have the static line square shoots where you can static line from pretty much any altitude and so even if you have a bad exit, for the most part, you're going to have a canopy overhead. But now you've got that precision canopy ability. So usually on a civilian rescue, whether it's like ocean or the stuff they do in Alaska, it's typically going to be those static line square shoots. And they can adjust the, you know, you're gonna, the, the lower, the, the better if you can, because it's not a tactical environment. But there have even been situations where because the, the minimum jump altitude for those static line square shoots is higher than it would be for a round shoot, depending on weather, you still need that round shoot capability. So I always hated jumping round shoots because to me, it's like a ankle or a knee sprain sort of waiting yeah. to happen, <laughs> but you still have to train for it because on the off chance that you did a, like a civilian or a combat mission where the, the ceilings were low, you had to be able to do it, but I hated it. <laughs> it, it always seemed to me, um, and this is just me spitballing that, you know, we have all these special forces guys and all these PJs who are trained in this with this capability, like in a scenario like like what happened down in Puerto Rico, like that to me is like an ideal time. Like, let's just static line jump teams into yeah. this area after the in the aftermath of a hurricane or an earthquake and then start doing like their civil assessments on right. what, what needs to be brought in here infrastructure yeah. wise, rescue wise. I think we should use it more often, but I'm not a rescue expert either. Yeah, I mean, in theory, that's a good idea, but you know how, like, especially 
commanders are when you're getting these big government bureaucracies ringing, involved. Like, in their hands. It, for, for like a civilian, you know, rescue relief, I just feel like, yes, like that's a tactically sound way to do it in a lot of cases, but I can just see someone behind a desk being like, yeah, we're not going to jump in like special ops because the optics, you know how the media could spin some of those those optics, right? So, uh, and, and for, for yeah. me, it's also like, it, it's, a, it's a civil... Nonviolent. I mean, yeah. maybe maybe they just need to carry sidearms if if that. Yeah, and but and then you're putting the teams at risk too, though, because like I mean, I've you know, there there's been situations where in some of these places where, where they don't always cover it, but there like there's stuff that goes on where you're you, you need to have some kind of protection. Yeah, 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 no, for sure. Like Hurricane Katrina, right? Yeah, it's a little sketchy. Yeah, um, but I mean, I I in my mind it can be used to you know as a civil uh, civil assistance mission. That also doubles as you know some real life experience on the infiltration technique, yeah, and, and and on the the medic skills as well, yeah, for sure. I mean, and the, the the key thing is like early mobilization. So whatever you're going to do, whether it's jumping in or getting teams in by helicopter, there needs to be canned plans so that I think you know the issue with after Katrina was that there wasn't really a lot of impetus to get people there early. Now I think they almost overreact where at least, you know, when I was still in, anytime Mother Nature would even fart or cough, it was like, we're going to mobilize you guys. And it's like, you know, a, a four-inch snowstorm. And it's like, we're going to get, like, special ops rescue guys to yeah, be on yeah, call. Yeah. But I don't know what the happy medium is there because, yeah, I mean, you're probably better off over-preparing than under, but then you're twiddling your thumbs and doing it's, nothing. It's but because everyone, that's what you could pay for, to sit, sit around and do nothing. Uh, the pol- politicians look so bad after Katrina. Right. You know, and that's why George Bush sent uh, 82nd Airborne down there after it was already all over. Right, yeah. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about like some of your deployments as far as like where you where you went, what you did, what what it's like being a PJ, you know, deployed in support of you know a, a task force or whatever. Yeah, the cool thing about being a PJ is like you don't always do the same thing on a deployment. So my first deployment, I was basically doing like uh, combat search and rescue for like some of the assault forces that were down there. So you're, you're I mean, you're more of a contingency, and that's where, for the most part, you're hoping that you don't get a mission because you're you're there to support some very specific missions and objectives and. If you're utilized, that means that like one of your fellow Americans is you know at a casualty on target. So you don't want that. But it was a good first deployment just because you're. I was in the aircraft a lot. I got to sit in a lot of the briefs with the assault units, and so you just get to see how how they operate. And from like a situational awareness standpoint, it was very helpful just to be constantly listening and knowing what's going on. The only actual missions I got on that deployment was just some UAV recoveries, um, and then our toy airplanes crashed. Yeah, exactly. Um, from my first deployment, I actually went right to my second deployment without, I basically had the option to like go home for a month or to just stay in country and, and then go from Iraq to Afghanistan. And I was like, if I have to go home for, you know, three to four weeks, like it's gonna be much harder to come back. Right. So I was like, I'll just stay there because basically I volunteered for an additional deployment outside of my team. And then when my, my actual unit deployed, I met them in Afghanistan and that was more doing, um, you know, cert- combat search and rescue for the whole theater, not just for like a special operations task mm-hmm. force. And everybody's always enamored with like special ops stuff. But I mean, some of the stuff that PJs w- were doing for the, like the, just the theater wide, like we're doing way more dangerous missions because for the most part, like task force, people have all the assets. They're very good at what they do. So they're generally not getting into trouble, which is a good thing when you're on the hook for anything that can happen in a particular region of Afghanistan, like just things happen no matter what. So from like a medical standpoint, you're getting a lot more, um, you know, medical treatment, medical experience, some, some experience on the ground, depending on, you know, what happens to 
the people that you're responding to. Um, and there, there, there was a little bit of overlap between like Medivac, Kazavac, and CSAR. And that was kind of a, a point of friction with a lot of PJs because PJs are like, well, we want to do all this like tactical high speed stuff. But then if you're, if you're waiting for like the, the Black Hawk down scenario, and that's why you want to be in theater, you, you might go on a deployment and not have any work. And the way the military works, as you know, is like, if you're not doing stuff all the time and you're deemed to be not relevant, it's why you have even very highly trained units now who are volunteering for missions or assignments that they probably wouldn't have wanted to do for sure 10 or 15 years ago because you just want to stay sort of relevant. Um, but so like, I think the Kazovac thing was good because like, all right, at least we're, we're there and we're doing something versus waiting for like the really crazy, sophisticated mass casualty scenario from an IED or like a down bird. You, you, you were doing some more traditional medevac, Kazovac type stuff, but it's not like it was coming at the expense of something else besides right, maybe right. bruising your ego a little bit. Well, what were some of the, the scenarios or, or uh, rescue situations that you, you and your team got called into? Yeah, I mean, so a, a, a lot of times you're, you're treating like indigenous people, right? Because mm-hmm. they're the bulk of the casualties. So, you know, like different, maybe like a, like a ranger team or like an SF unit is working with like a partner force on an op. So we responded to a lot of those situations. Um, not me personally, but like there's been dive missions in Afghanistan. There's been some really involved extrication missions where you've had like even like a, a guy from my team, uh, like a partner force or like a, not a partner force, but like, I think it was like a Danish team was hitting like a really severe IED and you know, like the, the vehicles on fire and guys are going in, putting the fire out and doing like surgical airways while the, the fire is still going on before the person's fully extricated just to get an airway and do some of these life-saving interventions. So uh, it's, it's like anything that can, you can imagine it could be. The, like any other job, the bulk of the time, you would regard it as relatively routine from the standpoint, like you have a casualty, you're air landing right next to it, you know, picking the person up. And then because a lot of the, the fobs in Afghanistan, especially, or even in Iraq, were so close together, you have a short transport time. But and there are even some fob to fob transports where people were like, ah, oh, this is this is bullshit. Why are we doing this? But at the end of the day, like you're a highly trained medical person and that's still someone's life. And if you're the best person to provide that treatment, then again, you should put your ego aside. So um, there was that. I've been to deployments on the Horn of Africa where I actually was farmed out to like another service and they were doing some, you know, some FID stuff over there um, and, uh, you know, on some ops where you know, the, the partner forces got into some ticks and got, got to do a lot of high-level medical treatment. And then because you're in some of these remote places and you can't always evacuate the partner forces to higher care, got to work with some of the, uh, like the surgical teams, the American surgical teams that were embedded there and do a lot of the follow-on care. So it's a really cool variety of experiences where there's not just one type of mission set, much like in ODA where, you know, you could do something like direct action, you could do FID, you could do reconnaissance. So we could be involved in those kind of missions as well, but the emphasis is always on the, on the medical part. Whereas, you know, for someone like you, it might be the weapons aspect or the intelligence aspect, the comms aspect. So, uh, yeah, I mean, any special operations job is a great breadth of experiences you can have, and a lot of it's being in the right place at the right time. But again, it's double-edged sword with pararescue because if something happens, you want to be the person to help out but you're not like necessarily looking for yeah, work, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's where the, that's kind of the ethical dilemma there. Yeah. I mean, we all like to do our job, but you know, in the military, you know, your job is kind of ugly sometimes. Right. And for like an assault team, I mean, there's always going to be some, somebody for you to go after. Right. But like, you're not hoping for like a casualty yeah, as a yeah, PJ geez. so you can, you can be busy. 
But there's always, you know, people you could be chasing if you're an assault team. Yeah, right? yeah, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> so heavily involved in the trauma medicine, but it, it sounds like also there's some like more long-term medicine uh, treatment that you were involved in too over there. Yeah, I mean, that's the way, what, I, I don't know if this has changed, but when I was in what like pararescue, and I think a lot of the soft, at least pre-hospital people advertise is that you, they could stabilize a casualty for 72 hours. And then beyond that, you probably need like a higher level of care, mm-hmm. like a surgical capability or something. So, you know, just because of the theaters that we were in, probably I didn't deploy until I think 2007 or eight, something like that. By then, we'd been so established in both the primary theaters of Iraq and Afghanistan that there weren't very long transport times. So there wasn't a whole lot of prolonged care. It was what were the whole thing with the gold? What is it? The golden hour? Golden hour, yeah. which I mean... Like anything, the golden hour is probably like kind of an arbitrary thing. Like whether or not like the hour is the magical number doesn't really matter. It's that you want to get people to surgery as soon as you can. And we had the infrastructure in Iraq and Afghanistan to do that. Iraq is also more sort of urbanized and more conducive to having shorter transport times. I would imagine that Afghanistan, like 2001 and two, you know, when you had teams flying out of like Uzbekistan or whatever, now maybe the prolonged, or at least then the prolonged field care was a much more um, relevant part of the job. But that's where, you know, the thing with SOF is, or even the military in general, whatever is like the hot thing to train for right now, that could change very rapidly. So then going to like Africa, where, I mean, we're responsible for a much greater um, area as far as like rescue capability. I mean, it's it's almost like half the continent. Now you could have multi-day transport times where you might have to even sw- switch aircraft and go from commercial to civilian and or even a lot of overland stuff, vehicle stuff. So uh, that's where the the capability, you know, the prolonged field care capability was much more important was in Africa. And it's like sometimes it's hard to train for all these things because to get really proficient in something like prolonged field care, you probably have to work in like an intensive care unit and do almost like what a what a nurse does. I mean, even little things like someone's been laying on a litter for four hours straight, like, changing their position, changing their, mm-hmm. their dressing so they don't get infected. It's stuff that you don't think about if your mindset is TCCC and stopping bleeds. You're, you know, high-speed paramedic. So it's, 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 a, it's a paradigm shift uh, for sure. And, I mean, a lot of it was done just, like, learning on the job because you, 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 we just didn't have time to be exposed to those kind of things. That's where having, like, the, the medical handbook and medical SOPs is really important. Telemedicine. Like, our flight surgeon in New York was the overall flight surgeon for pararescue, like when I was in Africa, I would, I'd call him on a sat phone and be like, Hey, this is what I got going on without, Interesting. without revealing, you know, like operational security details. And I'd say like, medically, what should I do with this person? Or, and a lot of times, you know, the, the flight surgeon is a generalist, not a specialist. Like they might not know if someone has a rare skin, skin condition or infectious disease. So then, then the flight surgeon calls the infectious disease person in DC. And so having that like good comms is really important because you just, and you can't know everything, right? Actually, I'm, uh, it just reminded me of something, and I'm glad you're here because we got an email actually on the last podcast that I tried to answer. I gave like a half-assed answer. Um, but what was the question about the special operations I, I surgery right team? Now. Yeah. That there, there's that endeavor, and it's a specific unit where they will like basically put surgeons on target. Yeah, so in soft medicine, the, the key sort of thing they're grappling with is, okay, we know that surgical providers are the definitive treatment for really severe trauma. Right. So it's like, do you want to get the surgeons closer to 
the the objective, <laughs> right. or do you want to <laughs> take your PJ's eighteen deltas and give them more training on top of what they already have? There's pros and cons to doing it either way, right? Because I I mean, as a PJ, and I would imagine eighteen delta two, like you're already so saturated with things that you need to so be many proficient at yeah. that like I my sort of bias or opinion is that I think that we should have had less capabilities than more because a lot of times like what you're advertising like yeah you could do it but are you really great at it the, um, I, by the way I, I have the email if you yeah. want to get a, a more concise answer from Doug here so originally from Paul Carey uh, hey, Ian and Jack, I'm a longtime listener of SoftRep Radio and a newly certified EMT. I'm working towards going to medical school and want to eventually serve. I recently found out about the Special Operations Surgical Team, SOST. The information about SOST is very limited online and would love to hear some firsthand experience from members of those teams. I'm really interested in learning the selective training pipeline, types of missions, scope of practice, and any other resources to check out. So, yeah, that'd be a good question for yeah, you. Yeah, so segueing into that question would be they're trying to get the surgeons as far forward as possible. So what these surgical teams do is they get as close to the point of injury as they can that's also commensurate with their tactical capabilities. So they don't, I mean, yeah, like they might go to like some shooting courses and stuff like that, but you don't want the surgeon or the anesthesiologist, right, to be like firing rounds on target. <laughs> so our PA killed a guy on target. In 05. Really? Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but so a lot of times, like, they'll, like, I mentioned I did some CSR deployments. Sometimes the surgical teams might be flying, like, an airborne alert mm-hmm. in, a, in a helicopter. And this is, like, all open source stuff. Um, that's probably as far forward as they, as they will get. They, you generally don't want to put them on the ground. I mean, maybe at something like an, like an ORP where you, you could set up, like, a triage For a, point. Big, a big mission. For a huge... Mission with multiple layers of security. Like the Bin Laden raid or something. Maybe you have an MSS right on the border. Exactly. Where a surgeon could camp right. out. I, I don't know if that's exactly what they did, but that's, that seems like something they would probably do um, where, you know, maybe it's a short flight to the surgical team. So let's say if your definitive care center is, let's say it's like a three-hour flight, rather than having the pre-hospital provider or the soft medic do that three hours of medical treatment, you might put a step in between where now the soft medic or pre-hospital person is doing an hour to an hour and a half of treatment, but that, that extra hour and a half could make the difference between life and death in a lot of cases. So these surgical teams, they want to get them as far forward as possible. They, they usually consist of like an ER doctor, a, a PA, more like a trauma-oriented PA, probably like what you encountered in the Ranger Battalion, um, either an anesthesiologist or a certified nurse anesthetist, so basically someone to put the patient to sleep for the surgery. Um, and then Maybe like this varies, like an orthopedic surgeon, if there's, you know, like a blast injury and orthopedic trauma, or maybe more of like a general type surgeon. And then there's always like a calm person as well. Like just we're not a medical provider, just pure communications. Right. So usually they're doing a lot of their medical care in like either a, a fixed wing or a rotary wing aircraft, not so much on the ground. And if they are doing stuff on the ground, it's probably going to be at more of like a FOB or an MSS. The training pipeline for it, I don't know a whole lot about it because it's, it's really selective. I mean, it's like getting into a very upper echelon uh, assault unit. Like, they have their own criteria. Obviously, you've got to start by being a credentialed surgeon, you know, s- surgeon ER doctor, um, CRNA, whatever the case may be. And I mean, to be. become a surgeon, you, by the time you make surgeon, you're like, what, 33, 34? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's probably... I know that 
you know, for a lot of the soft units, there's like a support pipeline where they're not making them do everything physically that like the assaulters would do, but they have to do a lot of it. And so, you know, depending on how far they want to take these medical providers, if you were doing an overland infill, these guys need to be in your girls need to be in sufficient enough shape to be able to make that overland movement. So I, I'm just speculating that there's probably some kind of physical selection. Um, and then there's going to be like a, a medical assessment as well, but it's good. I mean, I think it's a noble sort of uh, ambition to have. I would say just start by getting into medical school, doing really <laughs> well there. And then once, if you decide to join the military, I doubt there's like a guaranteed pipeline to do this because it's like a guaranteed pipeline to be in a very, you know, specialized unit. Um, and I'm saying specialized even above what like a PJ or a SEAL or an SF would be, right? So um, you've got to distinguish yourself in your military career to be eligible to even try out for that kind of job. But um, yeah, just start, you know, one thing at a time. But I think it's a good thing to to look into. And, you know, maybe to set yourself up for success, you might want to, um, you know, gravitate towards more like a trauma-based specialty. Um, if you have the opportunity, you know, try to get in with like an infantry unit versus like a support unit. And then maybe if you're in the army, like a ranger battalion or an SF team would probably be make you a better applicant than if you were with a conventional unit. So just whatever you can do to distinguish yourself um, throughout that pipeline or that process, I would try to do. And this also reminds me of, you know, kind of the flip side of this conversation about, you know, the golden hour. And I, I had this conversation with uh, Rocky Farr, who I, I believe he retired a chief warrant officer five, um, really interesting guy. I don't know if you know him no. or not, Doc Farr. Um, he's a Green Beret, and I believe he wrote a whole white paper about this topic. He said we're kind of, um, I, I mean, it's all well-intentioned, but we've kind of screwed ourselves with the notion of the golden hour because in the future, um, or even today, our special operations guys who have to work in an unconventional warfare environment, they're not going to have all that infrastructure built up that you were just mentioning. Right. You might have to treat your casualty for five days in a barn. Yeah. You know, that, that could very well be the case in the future. And that's the difficult part about training. It's like, what do you prioritize? Because right, it's right. always, the missions are always changing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you read the unclassified national defense strategy, like the biggest threats they name are not these non-state actors. It's like these, you know, cyber warfare and China and Russia and all these things. And if, I mean, I hope that we can avoid any kind of armed conflict with, you know, countries like that, that are like, like legitimate, like military. Right. But, uh, you're not going to have 72 or, you know, one hour transports and one hour to a medical facility early on in those type of campaigns. Right. So, or even some of the things that we're doing like in Africa or wherever. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I think you should always train to what's, what's going to be the most that's asked of you. Now that can come at a cost because now it's like you could, you could justify, okay, well, we're going to do free fall training every day when you're not likely to use it. But I mean, if you can treat somebody for 72 hours, you can treat somebody for one hour. Right. Um, so I, I you know, it's a little bit of a different skill set, but like somebody who works in an ICU is probably comfortable putting a tourniquet on somebody and stopping a bleed and intubating somebody. Uh, where medicine is really tricky is some of this prolonged field care and more of these medical type situations because trauma is really what you see is what you get. Um, like something is bleeding, you stop the bleeding. Someone can't breathe, you insert a hole for them to breathe. But where you know when some of these like multiple systems start to interact you know, 24 hours after a trauma where now you've got to measure things like urine output and, you know, different, um, like levels of pH in the blood to make sure someone's not going into shock and all these things. That's where you really need that expertise, but it's difficult to do that when you have to shoot, do tactics, do mountaineering, you know, scuba dive. It's like, 
a lot of trial and error is going to, it's going to take a lot of trial and error to figure out what the right balance is. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people don't understand that, like the amount of responsibilities and the amount of skills that these guys are supposed to be a hundred percent proficient on at all times. I mean, a special forces medic has to have all his medical training, um, his refreshers, maybe he's a qualified sniper. So he has to go and do the sniper refresher course. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe he is, um, you know, the 18 Fox. So he has to do the intelligence stuff. Um, he has to, you know, know his, you know, source handling and all that other kind of jazz. I mean, it's, and then, and then the infiltration techniques, uh, you know, like our team was a free fall team. So we had to know how to do that. I mean, it's just incredible. The amount of stuff that you're, and, and inevitably something has to fall by the wayside. Like as, especially with all the other bureaucratic crap that's dumped on you, like something has right. to give at a certain point. Yeah, and that's where it's like language, language capabilities. Yeah, what do you what do you prioritize? And I think you know people tend to put the the military and especially like special operations community on a pedestal. And you know we would go to like civilian drop zones to jump one time a couple of times, and like you're wearing like your cry uniform. And I think that the civilian population has this perception that like because we're wearing cries and we're scuba diving or skydiving that we're the best skydivers the drop zone. But I'm not, like not even that close, like yeah. stoner dude who's skydiving like ten times a day. Like he's a way better skydiver than me. Like, I mean, you've, you've got to be able to skydive, safely land on, your, on the drop zone with your team so you can do your actual mission. So it's like you've got to figure out what's the, what's the good enough standard where, like, you're safe to do right. something. Um, I don't think you need to skydive 10 times a day to be able to do that, right? But it's, I think it's harder with medicine because... But probably more than once every six months. Exactly. Well, right. <laughs> yeah, and with, with medicine, medicine's even harder because, I mean... There, you know, there were times when like I went months without treating a patient or even doing like a simulation, right? And then usually before deployment, when you know you're going to be called to do these things, you ramp up your training. But like if you're on the hook for a civilian mission and you haven't intubated somebody in four months and now you've got to do it in a dark helicopter, like that's that's pretty stressful. So um, and like you said, there's so many additional bureaucratic constraints and requirements that are thrown on top of the actual training that it can make it very difficult to be truly prepared, right? Um, so. This is something I think South's going to struggle with pretty much forever for because sure, for you're sure. the, you're the ultimate like generalist. But that's what makes you unique is that you're like you're you're providing medical care in a place that a surgeon doesn't have the capability or maybe the desire to go to. But that comes at a cost where you're not you're not providing that same medical capability, but you're the only one who's willing to do it, right? Yeah, I just kind of like giggle at it when I see like some of the things they're trying to do, this whole idea that like the future of SF is going to be, you know, two green berets camped out in a safe house with laptops doing cyber warfare and running sources and do I'm like, dude, none of that's going to happen. Come on, man. Like you can't dump all of this stuff on one force and just expect them to be able to do everything like Jason Bourne's not a real person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, if you want that, just develop the artificial intelligence and replace us with robots because that's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I think that too much is asked of soft, especially, especially ODAs. I mean, doing like ground level diplomacy, having minimal support, like you don't know who you can trust. It's our own fault too because we sell ourselves that way because we want to, like you said, we want to keep ourselves relevant. Right. Like Navy SEALs on paper, they're 100% proficient at all of these different things, but in reality, well, they're probably proficient on a couple of those things. Right, yeah. But it's, who, who knows? I mean, like and you, you want to do war on the cheap these days, so like soft <laughs> is the answer to everything. Um, and you and I both know that it's not, right? So... It's like a lot of this stuff is dictated by strategically what are you trying to achieve? And I, I think that, you know, soft on a tactical level, like no one does it better on a tactical level, but 
if strategically, which is that's determined outside the military, if you if you're like <laughs> trying to engage in you know like anywhere there's a terrorist, you're gonna you can justify sending a soft unit. After a while, and it's already happened, you're going to be stretched too thin. And right. now, now how do you how do you cultivate all these abilities if you're constantly deployed too? Because you're not you can't really train when you're deployed. If you're doing the missions, I mean, you're only doing what you're exposed to. Like you you can't develop these new capabilities. So. Um, None of this stuff exists in a vacuum. If, like, if your strategic objectives don't marry with tactically what you want to do, then there's always going to be this disconnect. And I think that's kind of where we are now, where it's just like people are asking way too much of SOF. And part of it, like you said, is SOF's own fault. Part of it, I think, is that divide between the civilian population and the military where SOF is put on too much of a pedestal. And I think that yeah. we, people like who used to be in the community, could do a better job of... like. Like these are regular people. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, hey, this dude has been deployed fifteen times. Like, he needs some time with his family now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a um, on the conventional side too. Um, there's some truth to it that uh, an increasingly smaller and smaller segment of our population is being expected to shoulder so much of the burden. I mean, I was one of the lucky ones. You know, I deployed three times. Got to do some cool stuff in the military. I was a single guy. I mean, think about the guy who stayed in. He got married and had kids, and he's still in the soft community today. So deploying over and over and over and over again. I mean, it's, again, something has to give. Yeah, and I mean, I've heard of like uh, like 82nd Airborne in, in Iraq doing like 18-month deployments. Like, that's absolutely insane. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what they were doing in like World War. I mean, I've watched like Civil War documentaries where it's like your, your deployment is the length of the war. Like you don't get to go yeah. home. But in 2019, should we be having 18-month deployments? Like I just don't know how sustainable it is. Well, in World War II, I mean, you got drafted and you were in for like a year. And you saw some shit, but right. then it was over. You know, you went home. Yeah. And, and for the strategic return that we get, right? It's one thing if you're like literally saving the world. Europe, saving the world, but <laughs> yeah. it's like you can make a case that if we did, did a lot less, the world wouldn't be that much different. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, just shifting gears again a little bit, I want to talk about um, you know, you going to Columbia, uh, you continue to further your own education and stay in the. I, I mean, are you? What I'm, was done, your, I'm done there now. Yeah. Right. But I mean, your degree, was it sports physiology? Uh, what, physical therapy. Physical yeah. therapy. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So what made you decide you wanted to kind of um, depart with the military and pursue, you know, the, the, the sports therapy? Yeah. So like I said, when I was prior to pararescue, I was like thinking about going to medical school and I was pretty deep into the process. Even at that time, I thought I wanted to do primary care or non-surgical sports medicine because I always liked sports and was active. And then that obviously changed when I joined the Air Force. So I knew I wanted to get back into that field in some capacity. And the nice thing about having gone through that pararescue experience was you work a lot in hospitals, get a lot of actual medical experience. And it made me realize that like probably I didn't like, I didn't like the hospital based setting, which is more of what you would get if you'd gone to medical school and became right. a physician. It's to me, it's just much, much more like sort of sterile environment. I like the more active environment. I mean, if you Googled physical therapy, you would see things that, that weren't too like invigorating, <laughs> but at least, at least like, as a physical therapist, I felt like I can kind of shape how I wanted to deliver that care and do you know more focus on preventative things and a more active population, less of like a, a medicalized or pathologized population. Like for the most part, I deal with generally healthy people who have more of a performance-related goal. And I'm not, I mean, I have the utmost respect for people who work with a more like debilitated, uh, you know, unhealthy population. But just if I'm going to do something every day, I want to 
you know, that's, that it was a better fit for me. So, I mean, even physical therapy, it's like, there's probably not a single profession that totally conforms to what I want to do on a day-to-day basis. So it's kind of a compromise, like this is the least worst fit. And then, you know, it's a cost benefit calculation between like, well, I can go to school for three years. Or I can go to school for eight years. And then it's like, I can go to school for three years with physical therapy, still have a good degree of professional autonomy, good earning potential. If you know how to you know manage the business side of things. So, and I was like 29, 30 years old when I wanted to like leave the military full-time and switch gears. So three years seemed like a better, better deal at that point than eight years, which is what it would have taken to do primary care sports as a physician. Um, and I, I like the more like the exercise aspect of it more than like doing injections and the surgeries and the more invasive things. So physical therapy as a whole is more like exercise based than like what like a primary care sports medicine physician would be. So, uh, yeah, I mean, went to school for, it was graduate school for three years at Columbia and then deployed, um, and then ended up sort of like by accident starting my own practice. I had no idea what I was doing. You don't get any business uh, tutelage or mentorship when you're in physical therapy school, <laughs> or you can maybe get like an hour of it. Um, but I, maybe from the military, I was, I was kind of like tired of working for so many different people that I just like wanted to do my own thing and be independent. And when you come out of that background too, you like think you can do anything. Like, well, uh, here we go. And it, I, I did think that and I was totally wrong. <laughs> um, and I got, I mean, I got my ass kicked and I learned a lot of hard that lessons, hap- but that happens to all of us. So, sometimes like the, the best way to do something is just to immerse yourself in it and yeah, yeah. not be prepared. I mean, I was lucky because I had a, but you know, when you're in the military, you don't spend any money. So I had a lot of money saved up. The GI bill paid for my, school. my graduate school. I didn't join the military with the intention of like, I I'm doing this to get money for grad school. Cause I, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to do it at that point. But the post 9-11 GI Bill was a nice benefit that made it easier for me to take on some of these professional risks when I graduated because I have classmates who were like 200 grand in debt between undergrad and grad school. And like effectively with the yellow ribbon program, like I got paid to go to school, which is which is awesome. And then when I wasn't in school, I was doing the PJ thing and then getting paid that way. So it wasn't as much of a burden for me or a risk to like start my own practice. I could get away with not not making not making that much bit, money yeah. initially and like if i w- if i wasn't making any money i could always just like sign up for you know to get on on orders with my guard unit and then support myself that way so i was lucky that a lot of kind of stars aligned that made my professional incompetence less uh, sort of costly <laughs> you know but i mean it worked out and it's one of those things where that's why i like learning experience yeah you, you read these business books or whatever and people try to like reverse engineer their success and like well like if you do these things, then this will happen. And like, that's complete bullshit. There's no way that you can predict some of this stuff. Uh, there's so much luck involved and so many variables that have to sort of align for people to be successful. And I, I, I mean, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm lucky that some of those things have happened and I'm kind of on the right trajectory. But look, looking at the website itself, which is resilientperformance.com, you're doing a lot more than just one thing. I mean, looking at the different tabs on the website, it's sports medicine, performance training, education, and uh, consulting. Mm-hmm. So it's it's more than just physical therapy, as you were saying, and it's very active. Yeah, and that's the the thing with any business is like, what's your identity going to be? And I, I've got my day-to-day like clinical treatment, um, which is great, but I'm kind of at the point now where like when, in this is one of the things too, when you get paid by the hour, you're incentivized to work a lot more than you normally would. Like if I was on a salary job working for somebody else, I would take every single vacation day that I was allotted, 
if you told me like you've got to be here between you know eight in the morning and five at night, like I'd probably leave at five, right? But when you're you're getting paid by the hour, it's like, well, you know, it's what's what's another hour? And then next thing you know, it's nine p.m. and you're like you're starting you're going home when you got there at seven or eight. So I, I've got to learn how to kind of like scale things and dial dial back a little bit. Where yeah. the answer isn't just to keep working more. That's important. But so having like the m- multiple streams where like we do some consulting, we do some online education. And then even with like physical therapy, most people are coming in, especially if they're like somewhat athletic. If your goal is to, you want to get ready for like a ski trip or whatever, you want to get ready to, uh, even if you're like an operator, right? Like doing a bunch of isolated band physical therapy exercises is not going to prepare you for those things. That's why like, I don't really see much of a differentiation between like fitness development or performance training and physical therapy, because the bottom line is you're prepared or you're not. And that's where I think having come from the military background influenced my clinical thinking where it's like, you, you need to be truly prepared. There's no false confidence. And a lot of people will succeed medically in spite of what you do. But I don't like, the, I wasn't comfortable with the idea of somebody coming to me with like a higher level movement or performance related goal and having them leave, not being truly prepared and confident in that. So that's where like, you know, we, we say it's like performance training, but to me, the distinction between physical therapy and fitness training is totally arbitrary. It's like, you're ready for your goal or you're not. The difference in a physical therapy setting is that a lot of times people are coming in with an injury or pain. So that might change what you do initially, but it shouldn't change what you do once you get closer to that person's goal. Because let's say you have like a, a football player who's coming off a, an ACL surgery, like they tore a ligament in their knee. Well, yeah, the day after their surgery, when they're like immobilized and they have all the swelling, maybe all you can do with that person is just like bend their knee a little bit to get range of motion back. But seven months later when they're about to play football again, you need to do things that look like football, right? So how do you say like, okay, well now we're, we're still doing physical therapy. Like at that point, your rehabilitation is scrimmaging, it's sprinting, it's changing direction rapidly. Um, so there's no one sort of school of thought or profession that like owns preparation. It's like, just do what it takes to, um, to get the job done. But you know, when you have medical insurance and regulation and governing bodies they, they create these arbitrary definitions of like, well, this profession should do this and this should, this one should do this. And a lot of times those sort of systemic things get in the way of what you can achieve with people. But a lot of, I'm lucky enough that my practice is it's out of network with insurance, which means that it limits who I can see obviously, but I'm not as constrained by like the, some of the parameters that an insurance company imposes from a treatment standpoint. I can see each patient for an hour, you know, for every session. And, and that allows me to see them a lot less than maybe they would normally go in and kind of save them time ultimately. But it also allows me to just pretty much do what I want for the most part without having to dictate, you know, having it dictated by like a, an insurance company, the billing code. So, you know, that's where all these things fit together strategically and micro level. We could talk about like soft and how they want to expand their capabilities because strategically they're probably being overutilized. Like medicine doesn't exist in a vacuum. You have these systemic and these healthcare things that are, that are, that are, that are influencing how medical care is being delivered. So it's not just like about what's best medically for the person. It's about, well, what's best medically with all the constraints that you have from the outside. So it's, it's all the same. That's what we're talking about. Like before it's people aren't solving unique problems. Like everyone's got constraints that they operate under and they have to make the best out of often a bad situation. One of the things I I did want to ask you about is I, 
maybe I'm wrong, but I get the sense that you have a bit of a different approach to physical fitness than a lot of this stuff. And there's a lot of bullshit out there if you <laughs> yeah. go looking for it. Um, or, or even if you go looking for good health advice, good physical fitness advice, there's a lot of BS out there. Um, uh, and I, I sense that you have a really like down to earth kind of perspective on it. And, um, I don't know if there's like, the, if the right question is to ask about like your philosophy towards physical fitness or, um, maybe what you think about some of the directions it's going in right now or where it should be going. But, um, I was wondering, uh, because I think you're a pretty smart guy on this subject. I was wondering if you could, you know, share some thoughts. Yeah, it's a great, that's you know, a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately it should be about as a professional, like you always want to show people how much, you know, and you always want to be the reason why somebody succeeds, but that can get you in trouble because, you know, like physical therapists care about things that their patients or their athletes don't often care about. So it has to start with, first of all, like what's the person's goal? Because if it's a 65 year old person who just wants to be able to cross the street without the countdown on the, you know, clock expiring or, and to be able to like <laughs> pick up their grandkids without throwing out their back. Right. Right. They don't need to do like power cleans. You know what I mean? So, um, it's, it's gotta be about like the person and not about you. A lot of people like, because they've done things a certain way, they expect everyone else to enjoy the same thing. So it's gotta be sort of like patient Taylor. or patient or athlete centric. Um, and then figure out what their, what their goal is and, and figure out like how to, how to physically slightly over prepare them. Right. So if you're talking about like a, like a soft operator, there's this whole tactical fitness movement where it's like, there's this perception that to be in soft, you have to be this like elite athlete who is like a borderline Olympian or a CrossFit games champion. And I know plenty of people who are great operators that I was like way fitter than, but they were more competent than me on a mission. So like there's only, it only takes you so far. It's like uh, the Kenny Powers thing. I'm, I'm, I'm tr- I play real sports. I'm not trying to be the best at exercising. Eastbound and down. It's, it's one of the, the just bizarre, um, most bizarre things I've seen is um, taking the train through Irvington, New York, which is like one of the most yuppie towns in Westchester County. I grew up in the next town over. And there's a big CrossFit gym right there. Um, and as I'm we're going by, past in the on the Metro North, I see all these dudes coming out of the CrossFit gym and they're like doing wind sprints wearing fucking like cry precision plate carriers. I'm like, where am I right now? Like, it's yeah. the weirdest thing. But anyway, please continue. No, I mean, it, it, and that's, you know, if people enjoy that, like it's not my place to tell somebody what they should yeah, or shouldn't yeah, do. Sure. But it's, if you're talking about like, let's say like an athlete in the abstract, it's, how do you slightly over-prepare them for what they need to do? So if you, if the most physically demanding thing you're going to have to do on a mission in soft is like, let's say, walk 15 miles through adverse terrain, well, you don't need to be a professional ultra marathoner to do that. But if all you can do is walk 15 miles through adverse terrain at a certain clip and like you're totally, I mean, that's 100% of what you can do. Now, when you get to the objective, you're not going to be able to perform because you've already basically expanded yourself. So the idea is to figure out like what do people need to be able to do for their life or their goal and then give them a little bit more of what they need, whether it's like strength or endurance or speed or flexibility. But like, you know, to be a, a soft, you know, an operator, you don't need to be a circus Soleil performer from a mobility <laughs> standpoint. So like, yeah, it's good. Like stretch, get more mobile, but you don't need to do a split. So a lot of times people chase these sort of arbitrary standards or they get emotionally attached to certain exercises or ways of training. So like, if you're, if you're in the military, if you'd like to do Olympic lifts, like that's great, but you don't need to do them. You don't need to do like barbell back squats. Like I like some of that stuff and I do it with a lot of people, but there's a, every exercise is a means to an end. It's kind of like saying, 
you know, what's the best, like, if you want to shoot, you have to use this one optic. Like, you should be able to shoot with iron sights, and if you can't do that, there's a lot of optics that work pretty well, so... Are you a big proponent of uh, combat-focused PT? I mean, that's what we called it back in the day, anyway. I... I think that people should be able to do whatever they want once they're selected. And as long as they're performing on the job, um, that they shouldn't be held to these kind of communal type uh, standards. But, but I mean, as far as like you're, even if you're doing PT on your own, I mean, it, 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 what's the, um, I don't know, preferred method. Oh, um, well, if we're talking about like in the, in the military, I mean, you've got to be kind of like a little good at everything, but not great at anything. So, my, my template for probably like a, the average like military person or like even law enforcement would be I'd probably do some kind of like strength training two days a week. I would do something that's more like speed oriented one day a week, maybe like not like all out sprinting like a track athlete, but something where you're just moving a little bit faster. Um, one day a week, I might do something that's more like a locomotion driven. So like a ruck or like walking on a treadmill with a pack or pushing or pulling a sled, that kind of thing. Cause that has a lot of transfer to like, you know, what, what you would do if you were like in, a, in the military or in a law enforcement or fire type job. And then maybe like one day of just like more of a low impact cardio type thing. Like it's, it, it's way more simple than what most people would make it. Um, everything now is about like attention and with like Instagram and social media, like oh, yeah. the basics don't really sell that well, but the basics go a long way, just like in shooting or yeah, just any like other military shooting, discipline. Like so just really basic web gear and a rifle that doesn't have all this crap on it. Yeah. And the other key principle is like risk reward. So if you can achieve the same endpoint by doing something that's less inherently risky, like then why would you do something that's more risky and has more potential for harm? So like a lot of what we see now in the training and the fitness space is stuff that it's like, first of all, they have like a freak of an athlete who's doing something that, None of us could do no matter how much that we trained and they're doing things like, yeah, you might get stronger doing that, but you can get stronger doing something that's way less risky too. So just like in the military, not a unique question, physical therapy and fitness training is really just risk mitigation because to, to get the adaptation you want from the body, you have to stress the body. Otherwise you won't, you won't grow and develop. But at the same time, like it's almost like the immune system. You want to give someone a little bit of a vaccine, but you don't want to give them a disease because right. then they get the disease, right? So, and, and we want our operators to be able to have a 20-year career if they choose. You know, We want that longevity. Yeah, and there's data showing, even from uh, Journal of Special Operations Medicine, which is like basically a medical journal uh, put out by SOCOM. This is maybe data from the last 10 years that they studied the Army SF population and found that over three-quarters of the injuries that kept the operators off status were deemed to be preventable. Not like you're jumping out of a, doing a static line jump and you sprain your ankle at night, which that's like an inherent risk of the job, no matter how well prepared you are. That's happened to all of us. It's not guys getting shot on target. It was basically people doing like dumb things in their personal PT program. So if longevity is the impetus for a lot of these movements, you could almost make a case that a lot of military folks would be better off not doing anything in the gym and just doing their job training and they would be healthier and probably better prepared for their job than if they were doing some of these workouts. It's like <laughs> no one wants to hear that. It sounds crazy, but that's so that, that's been the impetus for a lot of these like human performance programs. And I think that, you know, like any, the military is almost overreacted. They're, they're spending so much money on this stuff now and it doesn't need to be that hard. But I think it's a well-intentioned movement. Like, yes, getting a, a strength coach and a physical therapist at these soft units is ultimately a good thing. Um, but then it's still an issue with like, are, are they being utilized? And so 
you know, operators are stubborn people and they often want to do things that like quote unquote work for them. But oftentimes what works for them is not what they think work, works for them. So uh, it can be it can be tough. That's, no, that's very interesting. Um, so you think that it's actually much more basic and much more simple than what we make it out to be. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a couple of like really basic movements, because within any exercise program, like whether you do a front squat, a back squat, a squat with a kettlebell in front of you, like that's kind of arbitrary. Like it's just you're working a, sp- a certain movement pattern and you're strengthening the way that your hips, knees and ankles extend against gravity. Right. So you could I mean, you could do a step up or a lunge. They're all kind of doing the same thing. So the, the no emotional attachments to exercises is really important. Um, and there's already, especially like with the military and even sports, enough inherent stress in the job itself that why are people doing things like you shouldn't be getting hurt in the weight room because um, your job is not to lift weights. It's one thing if you're right. like a professional Olympic lifter, power lifter, and you compete and you get paid based on your ability to lift weights. Like if you're going to get hurt, it should be doing a jump. It should be doing your job. If you're a basketball player, it should be, you know, like um, getting elbowed, trying to go for a rebound and like that kind of thing. It should not be that. I mean, I, I've dealt with, I work with so many athletes and even people in the military who it's like, Oh, what's bothering you. And they're like, my shoulder hurts. And I'm like, well, when does it bother you? And they're like, Oh, it only hurts doing muscle ups. And I'm like, why, why are you doing muscle ups? I mean, <laughs> like you don't need to be able to do that. And so, yes, I could, I could counter that and say, well, okay, I'm going to teach you to do a muscle up. Well, but what if that person doesn't have the, the requisite mobility and strength and all their individual joints to do that? To me, you're better off just not doing it because if you can do everything in your job and your shoulder feels fine, why would you risk now not being able to do your job and further injuring your shoulder doing something that you don't need to do for your job? It's, like, it's, it's so intuitive, but people still like don't it, subscribe to it. It, yeah. it strikes me that in the, there's a in the current kind of fitness world or current fitness movement, whatever you want to call it, it seems like they're almost selling you more of an experience than yeah, that's a great point. physical yeah. exercise or physical fitness. Yes. And that's the difference between look, like if you're in the general population and you have like a sedentary job, th- that experience might be really important because there are a lot of people who don't like to exercise. And if, if, if part of what gets them to want to do it is that experience, even if it's not maybe the, the most ideally suited training program to them, I consider that a net win. Mm-hmm. I'm talking more about like the military or professional sports where you actually have a job. It's very physically demanding. That's where like, look, you're a professional at that point. Your workout maybe shouldn't be an ex- The goal of your workout should not be to have an experience. It should be to enhance your preparation in your job. And that's not always fun because like, is it fun to dry fire your pistol or to go to the range. Like it's not fun, but the answer is yes. Yes. yes, Yeah. (laughs) But that's what you have to do to be, to be good, right. To be a professional. So, um, training general population and training like, like someone who's a professional athlete or even like a, you know, professional rescuer or law enforcement soldier needs to be different because if you, if you work behind a desk and you hurt yourself doing a workout, you can still do your job. Um, so like the, the, the downside is different depending on what your experience is. It, it seems like a lot of the um, fitness programs out there, the idea is that like it's good, it's designed to blast you and just like wear you down and destroy you. It's like um, there's another example um, talking to a friend of mine. If you go and take a martial arts course uh, and it's the, the, the goal is self-defense. I mean, really the first thing they should probably teach you is how to extract, evade and escape. Right. Yeah. To avoid confrontation. But because you're going to a martial arts class, it's like 
the people who go want to learn how to choke dudes out or do striking punch people in the face. Um, and that, that's cool. You should know how to do that. But because you're going with the intent of having an experience, maybe they're teaching you something different than what they ought to. No, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, it's, yeah, the martial arts analogy is a good one. It's kind of like if you, if you were untrained and you wanted to learn how to box, most boxing coaches aren't going to have you spar every day the first week. Right, right. And that's what's happening in a lot of these fitness programs where, and it, the irony is if you're not that fit, you can actually get away with doing some of that stuff because you're not capable often of enough output to hurt your body. <laughs> but the fitter you are, the more you can kind of get Push closer to your physical potential. That, yeah. So now when you're, I think that the problem with fitness now is that it's not skill-based enough. It's not like no one cares about technique. It's all about output and not and every, every sort of workout's a competition against yourself or against other people. So if your goal is to just outperform yourself or somebody next to you, then you're not going to be too concerned about technique and movement is still a skill. It's like if you, um, using a soft analogy, like if you've got an assault team and the the assault team has to do like a long infill through adverse terrain and somebody's tired and basically shoots the hostage at the objective, you can't go, during your debrief say, well, I was tired from the, the infill. Um, so like I didn't, I, I took the wrong corner or like I, I, I didn't uh, have a good stance when I shot or a good sight picture. I just went in the room and started shooting because I was tired. Like <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't fly, right? It's like, or if you're a basketball player and you're like, well, it's it's the end of the game and I took a, a three a three point shot with the game on the line, but like my shot went to hell technique wise because I was fatigued. So these things still require skill. Um, and if you're not if you don't have a skill emphasis and your only emphasis is on like just making yourself as tired as you can, then I think you're putting yourself more at risk for injury. And ultimately, your training is going to plateau because you haven't developed that technique. So I think the, the martial arts analogy is a good one. Like you need to throw an, you need to know how to throw a jab before you can spar. And you have people who are like very, very unfit, immobile, unskilled, and like they're doing these very complex movements to fatigue early on. And a lot of times what saves them is that because they're just so underprepared, they don't even know how to hurt themselves. But the fitter they get, if they never develop that technique base, now they're more likely to probably plateau in their training. I mean, you can't predict injury. I can't say, well, they're going to get hurt, but you're more likely to plateau if you don't have that skill. Sort of like what I was asking Jens earlier about future trends in the firearms industry. I'd like to ask you the same thing because I think, again, you do have a a pretty good perspective, I think, on this. Like, where do you see the fitness world going or how we apply fitness to our population or or future trends? I mean, or maybe the pitfalls where you see it maybe going and in your opinion, where maybe you think it should be going instead. Yeah, I mean, the, the hard part is because a lot of this stuff is so commercially driven, if you, you need to, if you want to run a business for like a fitness class, you need to sell the experience. So if like, if my only goal was to make as much money as I could in fitness, I would get, get a room with like a bunch of exercise bicycles or something and blast music and make people feel like they're at a club and create this, like a lot of like high energy. They, they just opened an orange theory near me. Well, That's exactly what that is. Yeah, I don't know. You do I lines think, of blow I think, and get I think the they cycle. might do a little bit more, but the thing <laughs> is like, you a skill-based approach to fitness is like labor and resource intensive. People have very low sort of um, attention spans these days. So oftentimes like what's kind of like best from a training standpoint, isn't necessarily going to, to sell because people don't want, like they don't want to buy the basics. Now 
So you, you have to account for human psychology when you're doing these things because you can have the best idea in the world, but if nobody cares about it, then you, that's, you're, you're not going to sustain your business. So I'm not in the group fitness thing, but I guess if I was consulting with a group fitness company, I'd probably say, look, like if you want to create a truly good training experience, all the, the, the energy and everything you're trying to do and the camaraderie is great, but maybe utilize lower skilled movements so that people can push themselves really hard, but where the technique's not going to be a limiting factor. I think there's ways to do that, but now we've sold everybody on like, you have to do Olympic lifts and muscle ups and cartwheels and all these different things that now everyone's expectation when they go to a fitness class is if I'm not doing this, then I'm not getting a good workout that, which can be very hard to change that mindset. But like people, you know, people talk about like machine training and how machine training is no good. But for a lot, if you, if you want to work really hard and just get tired, you're almost better off doing it on a machine where you can't really screw it up. Right. Um, so where you can have a very high output, but it's a low skill movement. So um, it's hard because people, people don't always need what they think they want. And when those two things are at odds, it can be very difficult to deliver the, deliver the product because what might be the best thing like on paper is not what people are going to to pay for, right? They, they, they're buying the experience more than the fitness we're all itself. Set, we're all very set in our ways. I mean, in Ranger Battalion, there's like the guys who run and there's the guys who lift weights and never shall the two meet. Yeah. <laughs> At least that's how it was back in the day. I think they've done a lot better over the years and evolving. Right. Um, and getting more into that like functional fitness. But I was saying that, yeah, like you said, it's a, uh, we have a very emotional attachment to, I think, the way we exercise because we've made such an investment in it over the years. The same as like a, 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 someone who's a black belt in a certain sort of, sort of yeah. martial arts. Like you spent your entire life working up to this. Like you don't want to say, eh, maybe that's not the right way to do things. Right. It's, it's hard to be self-reflective. Um, and like I said, like people, most people don't need perfection. I think at the highest level of sport or the military, this conversation is more relevant, but like for most people just doing any kind of exercise is good. Right. Right. And so for them going to a group class, I mean, we could nitpick about like, Oh, I wish they were using, um, developing skill and technique more. But if for a lot of people, the alternative is not exercising at all. So if it's do this class that I don't think is ideal, not that I'm the arbiter of like what ideal training is, but if the alternative is not doing anything at all, then what they're doing is good. Um, it's kind of like, I mean, to use an SF analogy, the alternative to ISIS in Syria isn't like Western democracy. It's Al Qaeda, right? So <laughs> it's like, it's not, it's not always uh, what we, what we want to be the alternative. We have to be realistic about what the alternative actually is. So do you think the way forward then is a uh, more personalized um, fitness and personalized medicine? I think, well, I think it's, more web-based and tech-based. Um, I think that from a business standpoint, the personalized thing, yes, because it's going to resonate with people. I think a lot of the, the personalized medicine stuff is, is actually bullshit. Um, you know, you're going to see all, all these genetic companies coming out and saying, well, you've got like a, you know, 300% better chance than the average person of getting this type of disease or whatever. I think it's going to lead to a lot of over-treatment because this stuff is so complex. Like, multiple genes interact with the environment, but someone's going to like isolate. Well, this gene influences this gene, which influences this behavior or, and people are going to want to overly intervene, but everyone loves the idea that like, I'm so special and that this thing is customized towards me. So I think that there are going to be people who are trying to sell this like customized experience to people. And I think in the short term, it's going to be pretty lucrative. And then when people realize that it's not that effective, it's going to fizzle out. 
Yeah, we had a guy come and talk to us, and like we're, we're supposed to get our poop analyzed, a blood test, so we can figure out what our superfoods are. We're poop and, analyzed? Yeah, yeah. There's a poop analysis that uh, they were saying yeah. that, and and I think blood. I mean, this guy is into all of that, seeing everything specific to you. I have not done any of it, and but. we don't even actually know if that stuff does what it says that it does. So yeah. uh, we like the idea of it, but. I mean, most people, there's so much lower hanging fruit than getting your shit analyzed. <laughs> um, like most people don't sleep like enough. Like doing push-ups? They, yeah. Like they, I mean, they eat fast food three times a day. So I, I would say if you're doing everything, like if you're living like a monk, then get your poop analyzed. But how many people are actually doing that, right? Yeah. It's like people talk about, you know, some of these like different diets. The people, I was people, thinking the same thing. Like everyone is on the keto diet well, now. And then, and then the even more extreme version, I know you've talked about Jordan Peterson on the podcast. You could probably speak to this. This carnivore diet seems really extreme to me of, of strictly eating meat, you know, no vegetables, no carbs. You know, it's, it seems pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I just think if it's, if it seems ridiculous on the surface that it probably is yeah. um, like, and a lot of the people who will do those things, are so disciplined in everything else that they do that they're going to attribute or we're going to attribute like their health to I did the paleo diet when they also exercise a lot. They take care of their sleep. They don't like drink or do drugs, right? So, and what does the paleo diet even mean? If it means that you don't eat a lot of processed foods, then that's probably a good thing. Like you don't need to only eat like free range, grass fed, wild animals and leafy greens, but if you're if you're not eating just like the thing with a lot of this stuff is whether it's exercise or nutrition, the issue is not lack of knowledge. It's the behavioral modification that it takes to do the basics well. Yeah. So it's like people people we don't have like an obesity epidemic in this country because we don't know the ideal ratio between like protein, carbs, and fats, or like how you know what uh how many vitamins or supplements you should be taking. It's like it's systemic things. It's behavioral choices it's lack of access to quality food and education in certain parts of the country it's like it's all these things it's not because you didn't get your poop analyzed and and you know what's funny i mean the whole trend of the paleo diet right you're not eating rice but and people are talking about the obesity but if you go to asia there's no obesity epidemic over there and those people i mean culturally are eating a ton of rice a ton of carbs so I would say it's it's more than likely not that you're eating non-organic vegetables. It might be that you're eating McDonald's, you know, six times a week. Yeah, your lifestyle is totally different and you're active and you don't... I mean, who, who knows? But I think anything that, that comes off as overly dogmatic, I would sort of be skeptical of. I, I mean, even, you know, the paleo people now have kind of changed their tune and now they're they're allowing certain starchy things like even like white potatoes or even some rice because like the reality is people aren't getting diseased or obese because they're eating too much white rice or too many kidney. I mean, originally when the paleo thing came out, it was like, don't even eat beans. Like, is that really the problem is that people are like, there's an epidemic of <laughs> overconsumption of beans. Like, and, no, and it's if not- you're eating no to low carbs, you're also eating no fruits and, and fruits are not bad for you or sometimes no vegetables. There, there were even people who were saying like, Oh, like, you know, fruits have fructose in them. That's going to make you like uh, turn you into a diabetic. It's like, again, yeah. If you're eating, a, a gallon of ice cream every day and then you eat fruit afterwards. That's probably not great. <laughs> I have Ian peel my grapes. And <laughs> but I mean, again, like people, people aren't unhealthy because they're over consuming fruit. Like that's, yes, yeah. that should be the least of our problems in society. So some of the stuff is just ridiculous, but people like, you know, they want to believe stuff, right? And people want to be part of a tribe and these are just other forms of 
tribalism. Um, for for me, um, because I don't have the medical background that you have, I, I find that there's too much information out there. And it's like how I, it's so uh, hard to be a consumer of of healthcare these days. Yeah, it's like how the yeah. fuck do I sort through all this shit? <sighs> it's like anything else. You've got to find people that you trust and yeah. just rely. I mean, it's like I don't know much about how to fix my car, so I've got friends who are know about cars and they can tell me how to vet the guy that's trying to sell me on all these things that are wrong with my car, right? Yeah. It's got to be the same thing because it's just, you can't know everything. It's like soft. You can't be great at everything. You already have a job. Like, how are you supposed to know all this stuff when it's so confusing? I, or, I, I was just going to say these like YouTube people, there's so much in the YouTube fitness community. I'm into some of it, but the people who tell you nothing about nutrition and yet they're like, you got to take creatine, you got to take BCAAs. Like I would think, you know, what you're eating on a daily basis you know, loads more important than that. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I went on that, uh, slow carb diet at one point and was like really strict about following it. And I actually found like it, it had an effect on my brain. Like I couldn't think quite right. Really? Like, like, you know, um, they say that effect that, um, people have when they work in like Antarctica or something, they don't get any sunlight. What is it? Vitamin D deficiency. Yeah. And they talk about how lethargic they are. And like, They'll just sit there, like, looking at this coffee cup in front of me, thinking about, like, what do I do with that? <laughs> like, it had that effect yeah. on my brain because I wasn't eating carbs, I guess. Whatever it was with my body chemistry. I'd be, like, looking at my computer screen for, like, 30 seconds straight, like, what am I supposed to be doing right now? Well, and the, th- the thing with a lot of these, like, nutritional systems is that they're so overly dogmatic that if you're trying to take someone who has terrible habits, the easiest way to get someone to not comply in the long term is to be, like, have them do a complete 180. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you had someone, let's say, who eats McDonald's three times a day with a large, like, non-diet soda, for the first week, it should be like, okay, for, for, for lunch one day, for, you know, for, for lunch each day, keep everything the same except have a diet soda instead of a, a full-calorie soda. Like that's, and then still eat McDonald's three times a day. And then when you, when you prove that you can do that, you know, it's like one small modification at a time, but... The, the reason why the compliance is so low is because people, like, they're, they're being asked to do too much initially, and, like, change is hard, and they're just going to resist it. And, and the people who can, like, do these things and, like, are, are able to, to adhere to it, they already started out as so disciplined anyway that it wasn't a huge lifestyle modification for them. So a lot of times people in, like, fitness or nutrition, because they're so passionate about it, they expect everyone else to be passionate about it, And it's also their, their livelihood. You know, right. your, your body is your advertisement, right? So Yeah, like, a lot of people don't care about working out. Like, I have a lot of people who aren't that active, but they want to feel better. So it's like, all right, like, what's the one or two things we can do to make you feel better? I don't expect you to work out, you know, five five hours a week, um, which is, like, for some people, it's not even that much. But, like, I'm like, can you give me five minutes a day to just do this, like, one stretch or whatever? So you've got to kind of know your audience. And uh, But a lot of, like, the really strict dogmatic stuff, it's not it's not impacting the people who need it the most. It's, it's reaching people who already like believe in that stuff. And we're already probably doing it. And it's more like just confirmation bias. And it's like, depending on what your political ideology is, you're only going to watch one news station. <laughs> and it's more of like an echo chamber yeah, than right, right. really impacting the people who need it. Right. It's uh, back to the, the um, martial arts analogy. Again, it reminds me of that dude, that Chinese MMA fighter who keeps challenging like Tai Chi grandmasters. 
Uh, oh, yeah. Have you seen these no. videos at all? Are you talking about the videos where the guy is like beating people with his mind? He's like making movements it's, and guys are falling. So, the so like Tai Chi and other their traditional Chinese martial yeah. arts, very important in their cultural heritage. And there's this one guy, he's a Chinese mixed martial artist. And he is trying to break into this mar- uh, into martial arts in China. Very difficult to do, I think he's found, because there are these traditional martial arts. And so what he do is challenge these like grandmasters in Tai Chi and um, pummel them. Just like hands down, no questions asked, just like destroying them. And it created a shit, a shit storm in China because it's like you're uprooting this cultural tradition. Um, and he's like had all kinds of retaliation and uh, all sorts of stuff happens. Yeah, so. but it's like I think most people who have like half a brain know that someone who does Tai Chi isn't going to like win the UFC. So it's like why? Well, no, but there, there is. Are they making, I, I are they making claims that they can like? I don't think there's even a conception of the UFC in China. Right. Right. They're, they're, the the yeah. grandmasters are who they are and like Wing Chun or whatever it okay. is. Yeah. I mean, if they're making claims that like this system is going to make you like unbeatable or whatever, then yeah, I guess they deserve to have some skin in the game and have to prove that. But, but, but that's, that's the yeah. echo chamber, right? Yeah. 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 It's that's- an incestuous martial arts system. And I know people in the, in the, um, you know, shooting, uh, who run shooting courses and mar- marksmanship courses, they talk about the same thing, that there's this very incestuous kind of relationship in that world. Yeah. I mean, humans are humans. Like, this is, these are all <laughs> yeah, human yeah. phenomena. Um, <laughs> and it transcends the whatever it is that they're, that they're doing. This has been awesome, man. I mean, we, yeah. I think we've covered a lot of ground. We've gone two hours here. Uh, resilientperformance.com, at ResilientPPT on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, I saw Doug's personal Twitter is at Green Feet PT. Wrapping things up here, though, I do want to talk about what we have going on here at Hurricane. Uh, be sure to check out Crate Club. We have different tiers of membership, depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. I actually just got a message back from the guy who won our email of the week, and he was like, this fishing spear is awesome. Love getting that. <laughs> People love That's like a big item. And the funny thing is, you know, I was talking to Brandon off air, and uh, it, it, it is true in that he's like, I don't know if this is like the most practical item, but people love it. He's like, we it's one of one our most popular items. Yeah, so that was in a recent crate club. Scott Whitner from the loadout room, Drew Wallace, who's an Army Ranger, and all of these guys that you've heard on the show, they're working to put together great stuff with Crate Club, putting together great gear, 100% custom made for us. Everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products. It's a club for men, by men. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and a whole lot more. And you can watch that right now at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. The newest thing that we have going on is the News Rep Financial Report, exclusive information that you can act on today to secure a brighter future for tomorrow. The News Rep Financial Report can help you discover new investment strategies in the defense sector. Defense industry stocks can be a lucrative investment if you buy at the right time. Our team of foreign policy, security, and military experts provide real-time 
intelligence for stocks based on global trends that affect financial markets in the national defense industry. So by subscribing now, you'll get exclusive access to our industry expertise. The NewsRep Financial Newsletter Advantage is that our team offers unmatched defense industry familiarity and expertise unbiased knowledge of geopolitical trends, and full access to NewsRep's foreign policy, security, and financial intelligence platform, as well as access to our team of experts and analysts. Just go to the FinRep tab. That's at the top of the NewsRep.com to sign up. That's FinRep right at the top of the NewsRep.com, and you'll see that uh, prompt if you want to subscribe and become a member. Uh, man, we've covered so much ground today and really small world knowing we both grew up in Manhattan really? and it just happened out of nowhere. Just discuss, like we didn't know this going in. So yeah. really cool, man. And and also your background with uh, James Regan. I think that's a guy that that listeners of the show would love to know about. And, and hearing your background was really cool because I know Leo has spoken highly to highly of him. But as someone who grew up with him, that was really cool to hear. Yeah, no, I'm glad to uh, to talk about him and people more people should know about him. So, yeah. Well, once again, the website is resilientperformance.com, and then you'll see links to everything from there. Is, is there anything else we haven't covered? Because it's been a long episode. I think we've covered a lot of great ground. No, nah, I think that's I think that's good. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we'll have to Anytime. do it again. To, uh, you know, I've been wanting to have you on this podcast for a while, actually, and um, I'm sorry it took so long to get around to it. <laughs> no, it's easy. So I'm right down the, down yeah. the street. So. Yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime. Okay, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. And, yeah. and every now and again, we do get into the fitness stuff with different people. We have with uh, Ricky Poe, who was on, um, CJ Woodruff, who was on. So it might be cool to have you guest on some of those episodes too. And, sure thing. You know, because you're, you're definitely an yeah. expert in the field. Yeah, Doug really knows his stuff. It's like when we, we have Jim on to talk about martial arts. I think yeah. Doug, Doug is the guy to have on to talk about physical fitness. It makes sense. And every now and again, you're away. So I think it would be cool to have you on, you know, as long as you're open to it and maybe interview some people in that world. Sure, let me know. Yeah, because yeah. there's... There's such a cross-section with this audience and people into MMA, people into fitness, and that's why we yep. try to cover those grounds. I mean, I even did a whole episode with uh, former co- co-worker Sean the Butcher from SiriusXM and Pat McNamara talking metal just because there's that's another cross-section <laughs> yeah. of this audience. So, I mean, it, it, it just makes sense to cover that ground. You can't really talk spec ops every single episode. You could, but we probably shouldn't. You know, well, you know, so every now and again when we don't, I get like, you know, how come this podcast is is like steering away from that? And you just, you just well, want a big general audience. Like when we talk about, about uh, like comic books and we have comic book writers. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to mix it up. We're uh, this is going to be like what episode four hundred twenty five or something. Let me see off the. I, I forget off the top of my head. I think it's four twenty six. Let's see. We are now at. We are at episode 427. Yeah. So you got to mix it up. I I agree. I would get bored. But uh, really appreciate having you on, man. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.